Hello, welcome to Riot Act, the alternative music podcast. This is one of our classic album series specials that we do. My name is Stephen Hill. His name is Renfrey Deadman. Hello, Renfrey. Hello. How are you, Steve? How are you doing? Oh, I'm all right, well. thank you, mate. Ooh, I'm, yeah, good. Lots of talking. Ding. Lots of talking over <laughs> each other. <laughs> Gremlins in the machine. Um, <laughs> a metaphor, maybe for. Anyway, it's your pick, Renfrey. <laughs> that is absolutely just ripped that. Totally ripped that off, Alan Partridge. Just thought I'd do that bit from Alan Partridge <laughs> at the start of the show. Nice. Why good. not? Why not? Yeah. So uh, this is one of Renfrey's picks for his classic albums another double that we're giving you now a reminder if you go over to our patreon page patreon.com forward slash riot act podcast you can sign up for five pound a month and you will get one of renfrey's picks and one of my picks for classic album every month and for rioters reviews where you get to choose an album or suggest an album i'm gonna say like i'm not gonna promise you that we'll get around to it straight away <laughs> but you will be able to suggest some albums and one day we will get round, hopefully, theoretically, to doing a quick podcast on those as well. So you get six podcasts overall. Although we are giving, as it is the festive season as we record, we're giving this one away for free. It's part of a double. It's Renfrey's pick. We're going to be talking about Dave Grohl's third best band. <laughs> the, Foo <laughs> the Foo Fighters. <laughs> <laughs> um what so nirvana then Scr scream <laughs> no no not, not scream probot okay. right okay. scream probot and when he's in queens of stone age a bit yeah can we count with tom petty tom petty's oh, better he was as well. there for two seconds practically i don't know I know I'm being I'm being a facetious you prick are being because facetious, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you are <laughs> because you I, are. I I I have I have a, a reputation to uphold Renfrey as someone who doesn't care very much for the Foo Fighters so I'm just sort of putting that out straight away although in this instance I was about really to say true. but I was about to say though that reputation is going to be tarnished though surely because mm. I'm I, I you love both of these records right surely well, we're going to talk about the debut Foo Fighters album. And I think in part two, if you go over and sign up at patreon.com forward slash right act podcast, you will hear somebody talking or you hear two people talking about an album that they really love, that they think is really, really brilliant. What we have here is, well, we're going to get into it. It's the first album. I'm not going to spoil it too much. Okay, what I will okay. say is, is that I'm not going to be slagging off Foo Fighters like I have slagged off Foo Fighters a fair bit over yeah. the last sort of decade really but we're gonna it's gonna be far more positive but the Foo Fighters debut album which was released on the 4th of July 1995 mm. Renfrey take it away um well let's go back into the background obviously the story of Foo Fighters is predominantly the story of one Mr David Eric Grohl um so Let's go into his background pre-Foo Fighters a little bit. Um, Grohl had already been in four obscure punk bands. We've mentioned one of them already. There's Freak Baby, Mission Impossible, Dane Bramage and Scream before he joined <laughs> Nirvana. These bands were born from the nascent hardcore punk scene of Washington, D.C., the very same scene that birthed the likes of Bad Brains, Minor Threat, Fugazi, Rites of Spring, Dag Nasty, Girls Against Boys, Jawbox... And the nation of Ulysses. Steve, as our resident hardcore expert, I figured I would um, uh, <laughs> uh, throw to you and ask you, what are the characteristics of that 
Washington DC hardcore scene that mark it out from other hardcore scenes of the time? I think the Washington hardcore scene is probably the closest to being sensitive, mm. if you like. Yes. Forward that's, thinking. That's a great way to um, uh, A little bit more artistically minded, a little bit more. I don't want to give the impression that, that socially conscious bands didn't exist in uh, other parts of the world. Obviously, you know, the Dead Kennedys didn't come from Washington, D.C. There's... The standard, you know, New York hardcore, which has now been branched out into kind of tough guy hardcore, I think yeah. you think of neck tattoos and vests. And I don't think it's fair to say that that's true of all New York hardcore. I think you can look at bands like Shelter and Life of Agony who yeah. are, yeah. you know, varying degrees of that. The whole Krishna core movement that happened with mm-hmm. bands like Youther Today, even, you know, Harley flanagan from Cro-Mags, who is a buddhist and you know and there's a lot of kind of buddhist uh ideologies and rhetoric within their music although it is on the surface incredibly tough guy aggressive you know you won't bring me down type stuff in la i mean when i think of the sort of la hardcore bands the first thing that i think about is black flag obviously and black flag are or were a band who have you know, who talk about kind of socio-political ideas, again, in quite an aggressive way. Bands like Circle Jerks, I mean, particularly when you think of LA Hardcore, a band like, um, uh, oh my God, their name is just uh, TSOL, Mm -hmm. uh, who Mm -hmm. are just, you know, it was kind of almost pretty boy jock hardcore a little bit, you know. Mm -hmm. It was was not aggressive like the tough guy hardcore of New York. It was more like the, you know, oh, we're fucking wild, man. You know, it was drugs and the germs and aggro and that kind of thing. Um, And then you've got Boston, which probably, I've just said two are really aggressive in different ways. Boston was the unbelievably brutal, you know, they adopted that straight edge thing that came from DC hardcore, which I think, again, when you there's there's a lot more thought and a lot more yeah sensitivity to dc yeah. hardcore when you look at the other three scenes you go they are kind of predominantly characterized by if not violence then certainly naked bare aggression mm. whereas i don't think the dc hardcore bands are aggressive you know those, those bands are heavy and they're fast and they're you know they're they're aggressive in their own particular way but they're certainly far more um there's a lot of skinny kids with you know just wearing plain t-shirts as opposed to neck tattoos and you know pins and try you know trying to look like punk they don't look like punks they look Mm. like they look it's it's like the geek part the geek scene the geek scene the geek scene very nice of of the sort of the 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 early explosion of punk rock in in the u.s that is brilliantly put sir very very good um yes absolutely i would concur with all of that i think um the proximity to um you know the white house and uh the the political epicenter of the u.s is probably a lot to do with maybe you know, as you rightly said, there are hardcore bands and other scenes that had a social political um, kind of element to their music. But I feel like most of the bands in the Washington DC scene had some kind of, at least, if not political, at least so- social political kind of angle. Um, 
and yeah, I would imagine that's probably something to do with proximity to uh, the the White House, and you know, it's the epicenter of American politics, isn't it? I guess Washington yeah. D.C. So, um, mm. yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> musically, Dave Grohl has drifted from his roots, but his unassuming attitude stems from the DIY ethic of his early career he once told q magazine there are times when i feel a million miles away from washington dc in the 80s and then there are others where i feel like we're one of the punkest bands in the world i go back and forth for me the most important thing is integrity and i think you know we we have slightly differing views on foo fighters uh latter day career and um you know i i love some of it i really not bothered by a lot of it but i think in terms of integrity it's difficult to say like can can you honestly point at a time where dave grohl hasn't had integrity in what he's doing i mean even stuff like sonic highways and stuff like that i don't love sonic highways as a record but i still you know believe he's being true to himself and uh, as an artist person and you know yeah i think i mean for to to address like those latter day criticisms it's not anything where i'm like this is a cynical move on Dave Grohl's part Precisely. at all ever. Precisely. Unlike, say, Billy Joe Armstrong or Weezer, you know, other bands who I, whose, you know, <clears> stock <throat> has dropped quite dramatically. Or the Red Hot Chili the, Peppers. From that same time, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is just the fact that I look at Dave Grohl and see somebody who genuinely loves all types of music. And exactly. I feel like maybe the Foo Fighters recently have forgotten a certain section of music that, that has always been or that that used to be a big part of their dna and i think over the last 15 years they've sort of forgotten that with the exception of you know wasting light which i'm sure we might mention throughout this is kind of the the exception that proves the rule Mm -hmm. to me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay yeah 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 fair enough um in 1990, Dave Grohl moved from Washington, D.C. to Olympia in Seattle to join Nirvana. You might have heard of them. He joined almost a year to the day before Nevermind came out. He'd take a guitar with him on tour and noodle away with it, writing songs and stuff like that, more to pass the time than anything else. Um, and he said in an interview that he was in awe of the songs written by frontman Kirk Cobain and felt far too intimidated to share his own songs with the band. Um, just how in awe he was of Cobain's songwriting is somewhat evident from the album Pocket Watch. Um, released at the tail end of 1992 on cassette only, these sessions were executed in much the same way to how the Foo Fighters debut album would later be conceived, with the inlay card credits revealing that all music and instruments were recorded by Dave G. He applied the moniker late to make the project feel more like a band rather than a solo endeavour, and so as not to seem like a crash cash-in on the success of Nevermind. I've asked you to listen to um, this uh, Pocket Watch demo uh, and it's a very interesting kind of precursor to what this Foo Fighters record would become. I think songs like Petrol CB, Throwing Needles and Hell's Garden undoubtedly owe a debt to Cobain's stripped back alternative approach to songwriting. Um, I think they sound more reminiscent of Bleach era Nirvana than they do Nevermind era. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what were your feelings on listening to this Pocket Watch material? 
Um, I hadn't listened to this for a long, long time. Same, I think somebody same. had some sort of ripped CDR bootleg of it or a tape of it back in the 90s, mm. which was when a lot, I heard a lot of these things for the first time. Yeah. And I do remember being, and I think I probably heard it after I heard the first Foo Fighters album. So I was I was less impressed with it than that. And I think that's perfectly normal yeah. Yeah. thing to think because, you know, these the majority of these songs are probably not as good as anything on Foo Fighters really with the exception of I think like I'm sure we'll talk about Marigold or Colour Pictures of a Marigold as mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. called on this album I really liked just another story about Skeeter Thompson at the time because it was just a bit weird and a bit different and it sort of felt like something that one of those more underground Seattle bands would do rather than one of the big four yeah it's got a kind of Minutemen or Mudhoney kind of vibe that yeah. song in a way hasn't it this kind of like throwaway story about Skeeter Thompson who was the bassist in Scream yes um I think that's right uh that and, is right and um just a story about him getting his dick out and asking if there was pus on it and it wasn't it's just a piece of lint Mm. you know so a lot less sort of well, just, as a 15 year old that's fucking hilarious yeah. as well do you know what yeah, i mean like yeah, oh yeah. my god i can't believe they're saying it yeah. <laughs> yeah, penis man yeah. uh yeah 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 um i think most of the songs are quite distorted and raw and ragged as i said very bleach era like nirvana mm -hmm. there's there's promise in them though they're you know they're really scrappy and stuff but there are like so like throwing needles like if throwing needles had been released as a nirvana b-side I'd be like, yeah, this is fucking great, you know. Yeah, and, and like stuff so. like that. I like Winnebago as well. I think Winnebago's wicked. Yeah, like yeah. there is, yeah, throwing needles, Winnebago, the Skeeter Thompson skit, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, mm -hmm. Petrol CB and Marigold. Like there's some good songs in it. There's stuff like you like Bruce. I'm like, okay, and even Pokey, the little puppy, the song that opens it. I'm like, it's not really doesn't really feel like that's a fleshed out, fully formed idea, but it's quite long for you know it's four minutes. It's over four yeah, minutes long. And you just yeah. think like it's not really doing anything here, Dave. Like this is not a great way to open this. Yeah, it's an instrumental as well, and I know yeah. I know I'm Mister Instrumental, but it kind of feels like there's a vocal missing on that song, doesn't it? It does feel like a demo w with no vocals. Yeah, which to be fair, rather than a sort of completed song, which yeah. to be fair is exactly what it is. Um, but yeah, uh, you mentioned Winnebago there. Just to throw out this little fact, it appeared late. Um, as the b-side to exhausted uh which is taken from the the last song from the Foo fighters record oh, um yeah. yes um the one thing that we well there's a couple of other songs that we really need to talk about i think friend of a friend we should talk about because that has since become um uh sort of quasi famous in the Foo fighters uh back catalog it's a stark gently strummed observation of the intimate friendship between Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic, um, bassist of Nirvana, in case you didn't know. It was written on Cobain's couch late at night and later re-recorded and put on the acoustic side of Foo Fighters' fifth album, In Your Honour. Um, it's really stark and simplistic and tender and it really reminds me of a lot of the song, the acoustic ballady songs that Cobain wrote stuff like mm. um i mean something in the way i think is quite reminiscent of it or um mm -hmm. penny royalty maybe or all apologies maybe uh maybe i i mean just to i know you're not saying this and i know you're talking about it from a kind of sonic similarity perspective uh, yeah, as opposed yeah, yeah, to a quality one yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like for me although i actually prefer the pocket watch version for 
uh, rather than the one by one version for that exact reason mm-hmm. i think it's some way away yes from being of a similar quality i mean particularly when you when you threw out all apologies i nearly went <laughs> oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, no, no no yeah as, as you said i i am saying sonically rather than quality but definitely mm. um but really i'm just trying to make the point that like Dave Grohl was very much in awe of Kurt Cobain's songwriting. And you can really tell from this demo. Uh, he wasn't the only one, was he? Let's be perfectly <coughs> honest. No. If if this sounds like we're going, oh, Dave Grohl, he's just copied his boss. No, 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 no. I mean, everyone did. Not at all. And, 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 and you know, even if he did initially, I mean, that's how you sort of, that's how you start out. You know, these are like some of the first songs Dave Grohl ever wrote so it's totally fair enough one thing that i do really like about friend of a friend is i think it really captures if you think about what dave Grohl had just been through he'd moved um across the united states to a strange city and a strange um town to be in this band with two basically complete strangers and i think it captures that kind of slight isolation in terms of like i'm just getting to know these people and i really admire them and i like them but i'm not quite in my right place yet i don't quite feel comfortable yet because this is all new to me and stuff like that and i think friend of a friend really i think it captures that really nicely Mm. yeah you know i've never thought that before but yeah not that i never thought i've never agreed with that i'd never considered that before you're probably right yeah. yeah yeah i think i think i think it's I think it's a really nice tune. I certainly am not saying it's as good as the Kurt Cobain ballads, but certainly you can hear the through line, I think. Uh, the other pic- the other song that we need to talk about, as you've already mentioned, Colour Pictures of Marigold, a song that Cobain overheard Grohl working on and he liked the song so much he insisted that they re-record it with Steve Albini during the In Utero sessions. The re-recorded version wound up as the B-side for Heart Shaped Box with its title shortened simply to Marigold. And Which I own. And fun Remember. fact, oh, the single... I've got the single. Yeah, I remember nice. I bought bought the single, and you know, there's something else on there as well. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but I remember being like, "Oh shit, this song Marigold is fucking awesome." Mm, it's cool. And then it? I saw it like written by Dave Grohl, and I was like, "Oh my god, like Dave Grohl." Yeah. And at that point, you know, we were like, "That's weird, Dave Grohl writing a song for yeah. Nirvana and yeah. stuff." But the I, drummer I, writing a song. Yeah, yeah, but I genuine the, the attitude. Of course, yeah, but I—I I mean, I really, really, really like Marigold. I always—I think even bef- probably not before Foo Fighters were a thing, but like certainly, yeah, I remember hearing it and being like, "This is, this is yeah. a great song." Yeah, it's a great song. Um, fun fact: it's the only song in Nirvana's discography that wasn't written or sung by Cobain. So there you go. Uh, no, Marig- Marigold's a, a, a great song, certainly. Uh, is it the highlight of Pocket Watch? Yeah, it probably is, isn't it? I suppose. I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, incidentally, despite Grohl's fear of showing these songs to the rest of Nirvana, um, I think it's worth pointing out that Cobain was actually very encouraging towards him writing these songs. Um, Grohl recalled on the Seattle episode of Sonic Highways, the docu- the Uber documentary that he made about music around the United States, that Cobain kissed him excitedly on the face when he first heard an early demo version of Alone and Easy Target. Um, Grohl mm. was too afraid to be in the same room as Cobain 
as he listened to the track. So he was, you know, very nervous about showing these songs to Kurt. And I don't think he wanted to step on anyone's toes or anything like that. He didn't want to do anything with them necessarily. But but yeah, Cobain was very encouraging of Dave writing stuff. And I think Marigold, who knows if they'd continued, maybe um, Dave would have gradually started contributing more songs and maybe on you know the the follow-up to in utero maybe dave Grohl would have had one song on it and then maybe three on the next and blah 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 you know that yeah, could was, have happened i was gonna, I was gonna I thinking about kurt cobain singing alone in easy target and it being on the nirvana album doesn't seem like i mean it seems like quite a good idea i think they they farted you know, about, would... they farted about with it they did i mean i don't know if there's any recordings out there but they did they did rehearse it apparently mm. Wow, what an amazing alternative world. It would have would been be. interesting. Yeah, it would have been interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it goes without saying, really. As you can imagine, um, Kurt Cobain's suicide on April 5th, 1994, had a deeply detrimental effect on Grohl and Novoselic and their relationship to music. Uh, during a speech at South by Southwest in 2013, Grohl addressed Cobain's death, saying, When Kurt died, I was lost. I was numb. The music I had devoted my life to had now betrayed me. I had no voice. I turned off the radio. I put away my drums. I couldn't bear to hear someone else's voice singing about pain or joy. It just hurt too much. Um, around the time of... Uh, the Foo Fighters record following the death of Cobain, Grohl was asked relentlessly about his death, as illustrated in a Rolling Stone article by Chris Mundy from October 1995. So I'm going to read this quite big quote from this, but this should give you an idea of, I mean, just imagine this extrapolated to basically every publication at the time, that all of these publications were just asking incessant mm -hmm. questions about Cobain's death. For the past year, silence has enveloped Dave Grohl like a cocoon, yet he is unwilling, even once, to address Cobain's suicide in order to break free. I have the same question as everyone else, Grohl says when the topic is broached. The last thing I want to do is answer a question with a question. He begins to speak in slow, deliberate tones. I understand that people want to know this, but there has to be a line drawn, he says. Because the day after your friend dies, an American journal wants to talk to you, and Diane Sawyer wants to do an interview. He pauses. It made me so fucking angry. It made me so angry that nothing was sacred anymore. No one could just stop, not even for a day or a year or the rest of our lives and just shut the fuck up. So I decided that I was just going to be the person to shut the fuck up. Instead of talking, Grohl dropped out of sight, focusing on family and a close circle of friends. He went on trips and spent time with his mother in Washington, D.C., periodically checking in with Nirvana's bassist Chris Novoselic. I think about Kurt every day and I miss him, Grohl adds quietly, measuring his words carefully. And I realise that I miss him. But at the same time, things keep going and I've got to make sure that things keep moving for me. I don't know if this band makes anyone else feel better. I just know I have to do it for myself. I have to feel like I'm moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, it must be fucking rough, that. Like that. Yeah. I mean, you've lost your your mate and your career all in one incident and 
<clears throat> I mean, I've I've never had the the pleasure of interviewing Dave Grohl or Chris Novoselic. No. Uh, but I often think about what I would maybe say to him because I've like to be honest. I mean, I'm sure. We'll, well, I'm not even sure. I know in, with with total certainty that one day we will be doing a Nirvana yes. classic album. Yes. At some point. So I don't want to go too much into the Nirvana stuff now, but I feel like it would be very difficult for me. I think it would be very difficult for me not to say something to the guy who was in Nirvana about Nirvana, but he's just heard it all so many times mm. over 30, 30 years. Mm. What can you say? And particularly then when it was so raw to have it be under a mic, you'd be under that microscope. I mean, it doesn't feel real now when you think back to then, like as we record in 2020, we're 26 years down the line from Kurt Cobain dying and the world is in such a completely different place that you don't, you know, I, I remember it. I remember it happening and I remember what a big deal it was just in my village, in my circle of friends. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So to be Dave Grohl when that was going on, poor, I don't know. That must be mm. just, I can't even fathom it, really. It was the first um, celebrity death that, ev that ever had an effect on me. And um, again, you know, as you said, we won't go into it loads here because we were, there will be a Nirvana special. But um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you've already said Dave Grohl's life is music. Like, he's a massive music fan, you know. And um, for that to be tainted um, with something as painful as that must be a really horrible kind of personal hell really to have something that you love completely ruined for um thankfully a short period of time but you know um i think for for dave grohl and chris novoselic um you know i mean chris novoselic didn't do anything for for a while after nirvana, after nirvana you know and can't blame can't blame them at all in fact i think a lot of um a lot of people probably felt at the time that Dave Grohl, he took about nine months off, um, you know, and didn't play music at all for around about nine months. But I think a lot of people thought that he jumped back into music too soon, as if they have a right to say when he should jump back into music or not. But anyway, um, but yes. Um, which is odd, just to kind of pick up on that, which is odd because, you know, within a month of the death of um, uh, Cliff Burton, Jason Newstead was in, was in Metallica and that was carrying on. And, you know, there were Bon Scott died and ACDC released an album with a new singer the same year as that yeah. happened. Like, you know, this shit has happened before. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know, maybe people felt a closer personal connection to Kurt around that time than they did to someone like Bon Scott or, cliff burton although i'm sure there, there might have been people who felt like that at the time but i think kurt was probably the biggest celebrity on the planet at the time wasn't he and he's certainly up there mm. um i i think a lot of it had to do i mean there was a very sneery attitude in you know rock press back then anyway um i'll be reading quite a few things from this era and i think you'll notice a difference uh in the sort of sneeriness then and now um in a lot of the but um yeah there was a lot of people who were just like well you're just a drummer like 
you know you can't mm. play you can't sing you are this thing and you can't the be grunge ringo the grunge ringo yes of course yes 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 i can't remember where that around. i can't remember where that quote originated but i did actually find where that quote originated somewhere and um, yeah. surely the nme <laughs> probably surely. probably yeah 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 um so um after cobain passed away Grohl received offers to work with various artists uh after nirvana's premature demise press rumors indicated that he might join pearl jam but he never gave it any serious consideration i think these rumors came from absolutely fuck all um probably uh, well apart from the fact that um and we will be getting into this later but eddie vedder and uh dave Grohl were really good friends and probably like someone saw them together and were like oh Dave Grohl's joining Pearl Jam. But if you think about mm. it from his perspective at that time, like Pearl Jam were fucking massive at this time. Dave Grohl, you know, whilst he was, you know, loved being in Nirvana and all that kind of thing, he didn't love the being a massive, massive, massive band who had loads of eyes on them all the time sort of thing. So the, the idea of Pearl Jam moving, uh, sorry, the idea of Dave Grohl moving from Nirvana to Pearl Jam, from one massive, massive band to another massive, massive band, and especially in 1994. I mean, to be to be fair, Pearl Jam were not in a great state in 1994. They were still making amazing music, but they were very fractured, and there was a lot of kind of push and pull between, um, particularly Stone Gossard and Eddie Vedder, uh, in terms of like the songwriting direction and all that sort of thing. Um, Eddie was regularly like trashing uh rooms backstage and stuff like this just taking out his anger and 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 he he felt all this pressure because the press kind of painted it as well kurt cobain's gone now so you're the voice you're the voice that speaks to generation x now what what have you got to say for yourself and you know i i I can't ever imagine that dave grohl gave a second thought to joining pearl jam for those reasons yeah he'd be mad to do that i yeah. suppose because pearl jam also because pearl jam get a new drummer every week around that time, <laughs> they did around that time they did <clears throat> around that time they did but yeah i think yeah th- those those rumors did circulate but ap- absolute nonsense uh he was also offered a position as the drummer with danzig i, w- I mean fucking would have <laughs> loved to have seen that dave Grohl, the nicest man in rock and glenn danzig the most well <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It would make, I, 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 be an interesting unusual. detective duo, Danzig and Grohl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really would. That that is proper good cop, bad cop, right there. Um, I can't imagine. I mean, I can imagine Glenn. Dan- uh, I can imagine Dave Grohl liking Danzig. Oh, totally. But I can't really imagine Dave Grohl wanting to be in Danzig. No, no. And having to because you got to look like danzig yeah yeah exactly and act like danzig yeah um yeah that that's a that's a surely a no-go yeah yeah exactly um his first appearance post the death of cobain was more low-key playing drums on a cover of the beatles money at the 1994 mtv movie awards i said low-key but it's actually relatively high profile isn't it as part of the backbeat band which was an all-star lineup that featured thurston moore greg dooley don fleming mike mills and dave perner that's Mm. not bad is it um Mm. 
During the recording of Foo Fighters' debut album, Tom Petty asked David Grohl to play drums with the Heartbreakers on Saturday Night Live after drummer Stan Lynch decided to move on after 18 years as a heartbreaker. Grohl accepted the invitation, playing arousing renditions of You Don't Know How It Feels and Honey Bee. Um, He's grinning from ear to ear the entire time, and he is smacking those skins like Animal from The Muppets. Um, And he's clearly having an amazing time. After the performance, Petty asked him to join the Heartbreakers. And it was a make or break decision. And Grohl was very, very, very tempted, but ultimately turned him down. From an article on the Rolling Stone, um, in Rolling Stone, Grohl sits in the van and holds two fingers so close together that they're almost touching. I was this close to joining, he says. It was so much fun. I was really scared. I was most afraid that they'd watched MTV's Unplugged and decided to get me from seeing that. But when we rehearsed, they treated me like I was in the band. It was such an honour. But I figured that I was 26 years old and didn't want to become a drummer for hire at the age of 26. I think I think Grohl was so close to joining Tom Petty. If there are parallel universes, there is a parallel universe where Tom Petty, uh, where Dave Grohl did join Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, even to me, even that f- does feel, like he says, he's 26 and he's come from a grunge band and like, you know, Tom Petty's wicked, man. Fantastic. Tom Petty's great. Yeah. But again, I mean, it's not as hilarious a connection as Dave Grohl playing drums with Danzig. No. But it does still feel like a slightly odd one, Yeah, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Personally. Um, I think, you know, you watch him hitting that hard and I'm not sure all of Tom Petty's songs... I mean, he wouldn't have... He obviously knows what serves a song far better than I do. Yeah. But I don't think that sort of John Bonham drum smasher is the thing that you associate with Tom Petty, really. I agree. I agree totally. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, that Saturday Night Live footage. I didn't ask you to rewatch it, but you you must have seen. Yeah, it. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like, definitely check it out. It must be on YouTube somewhere. It's absolutely brilliant. And um, yeah, he's clearly having the time of his life, and and it works brilliantly with those two songs. Um, but I mean, Dave Grohl is capable of playing quietly, undoubtedly. But I, it, it does feel a bit of a waste of his talents uh not not that it's you know i'm not saying that it's easy to play drums quietly it's actually extraordinarily hard to play drums quietly but but when you drum like that it would seem yeah it would seem like a bit of a waste i think Mm, Um, so so don't play drums at all (laughs) (laughs) no 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 no, i'm not saying that uh the combination the combination of playing with petty and um also playing drums on mike watts formerly of minutemen's solo album Bullhog or Tugboat encouraged Grohl to dig himself out of the depression he'd found himself in after Cobain's death. He booked six days at Seattle's Robert Lang Studios in October 1994. He chose the studio because it was down the road from his house. He wanted to record, quote, my favourite songs I had written in the past four or five years that no one had heard. It was some cathartic thing. I needed to punch through this plate I'd been trapped in for a while and I thought this would be the best therapy for me. He also admitted that the debut album was never supposed to be a major release. It was just recorded down the street from my house in six days. Had I intended it to be a full release, I would have spent more than six days on it. Um, kind of crazy to think that this record that we're talking about was recorded in less than a week, right? 
It is, yeah. I mean, it was. It certainly was at the time. I think listening back to it now, there is a you know a, a consider well weird to say a live charm when it can't have been recorded live, but there is a kind of scrappy demo-y charm that's a scrappy it. charm a scrappy charm is exactly the word yeah yeah mm. yeah uh but yeah i mean i'm pretty sure if he'd have known this is going to go into like the charts and stuff he might have tried to make it sound a little bit nicer oh yeah there'll, there'll be quotes that confirm that later yeah definitely yeah um Grohl wrote and recorded the entire album himself bar a guest guitar spot by Greg Dooley of the Afghan Wigs on Ecstatic. I got a quote from Greg here. He'd do a whole song in about 40 minutes. I was completely fascinated by it. He could do it because he has perfect time. He'd lay down a perfect drum beat and work off that. He'd play drums, run out and play bass, and then put two guitar layers over the top and sing it. I was just watching him record and he asked me if I wanted to play. I didn't even get out of my chair he just handed me a guitar. So bar bar a guitar part on Ecstatic, Dave Grohl plays every single note that you hear on this debut Foo Fighters record. Mm. Now, albums recorded by just one person have become a lot more commonplace, I think, these days in the advent of sort of digital recording uh, yes. where you can kind of, you know, oh, let's just cut that bit out and I'll just paste that bit in there and make it sound nicer and stuff like that. But obviously at the time, you know, you had to, do, I mean, as you say, it, it couldn't have been recorded live as in all together live, but with those analog recordings, you had to do the take live. It had to go be straight through and it had to, you know, work and sound good. And if you wanted to do any editing on it, it was a pain in the ass to do it. So the fact that i mean every single song that was done on this record was recorded on this record was done in one take bar i'll stick around which took two yeah that's insane isn't it? <laughs> it's fucking mad it's like it's just like you know like, and, and this isn't like a super technical record or anything like that but you know, when you're in that like high pressure studio situation, it's it's uh, to 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 be able to record all of those songs. There's 14 or 15 songs as well because there's a few songs that didn't make it. It's just it's just astonishing. It's an astonishing like, and I suppose he didn't feel a lot of pressure because he didn't think this was going to be anything really. He just you know thought I'll just release it for the sake of doing something so that I can get out of this funk that I'm in, but. It's pretty astonishing. And I think up to this point as well, um, there there were a, a few albums that had been recorded by just one person, but there weren't all that many because pre-digital recording and all that stuff, it was just way, way harder to do it. Um, I thought of a few. There's Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, that's the first one that came into my head, yeah. Um, although although I did look up the... Um, uh, I did look up, have a look at the... Uh, liner notes for Pretty Hate Machine and Richard Patrick does actually play some guitar on Sanctified. Um, does he? But considering considering Greg Dooley plays guitar on one song of Foo Fighters, I'll I'll, I'll allow I'll allow it. Mm -hmm. um, Stuart Copeland did an album in 1980 called Clark Kent, where he played every instrument. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a couple of Prince albums where he plays absolutely everything. I know for a fact that his debut for you 
He plays absolutely everything. There might be a couple of others as well. I'm not a massive Prince guy, so I'm not 100% sure about that, but I'm sure people can let us know. Unless yeah, you know. I, 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 off the top of my head, I don't know which ones were and weren't, but I do know there are, yeah, I think there are a few. Yeah, I imagine there's a couple. Um, I almost didn't include this, but Siamese Dream by Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corgan recorded absolutely everything on it, bar the drums, which is Jimmy Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is another person. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, Jimmy Chamberlain is a person. That's why I almost didn't include yeah. it. But I thought I thought it was worth, you know. I mean, that's pretty astonishing, especially for that record. Yeah, yeah. Uh, future classic album special. Uh, McCartney one and two, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, although and three, which is coming, and three, which is coming. Yeah. Um, although one and two does have backing vocals from Linda McCartney, but I'll forgive that. That's fair enough. Um. Yes, there's other things to not forgive on those two records to be fair so. <laughs> um there are others uh i mean john fogarty released one uh, an album called centerfield in 1985 roy wood released an album in bulk called boulders in 1973 skip spence released an album called awe in 1969 uh mike oldfield played a lot of tubular bells like a lot of it um not all of it but a lot of it um there are examples but there aren't many you have to really dig deep to find many examples of an album made by one person pre-1995 i'm sure there's a few black metal projects the prodigy, as well. ex- the prodigy experience i mean you would you count stuff like that liam howlett did all of that in his bedroom well I, if i'm counting pretty hate machine i think i should probably uh include that so yeah yeah that that's yeah. fine um you know but there, there aren't there aren't many. Uh, I'm sure there's some black metal stuff that I'm missing out as well. Um, but yeah, like it is, it was pretty rare at that time. Um, the twelve songs on Foo Fighters were chosen from more than thirty that Grohl had written during the previous six years. Songs on the album were recorded in the order that they appear on the album. Nine of the songs were composed before or during Grohl's tenure with Nirvana and existed in demos created by Grohl on his home eight-track tape recorder. The three songs written after Cobain's death that appear on the album are This Is A Call, I'll Stick Around and Oh George. Um, Grohl was very insecure about his singing. Uh, And there's this... um, I mean, I think a lot of people will probably know that a lot of vocals on albums are, are double tracked to give it a bigger, thicker sound. Grohl was so insecure that on some of the um, songs, uh, Floaty in particular, uh, the vocals are actually quadrupled because he just felt really, really insecure about his vocals. Um I think it kind of pops out on Floaty as well. It does sound like there's so many. It sounds like there's loads and loads and loads of voices on that, but that's because he. It's a quadruple tracked song. Yeah, vocally. So yeah, right. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, similarly to Pocket Watch, Grohl hoped to stay anonymous and release the recordings in a limited run under the name. Foo Fighters, a name derived from a World War II term for unidentified flying objects. He hoped the name would lead listeners to assume the music was made by several people. He said later, had I actually considered this to be a career, I probably would have called it something else because it's the stupidest fucking band name in the world. The demo tape circulated in the industry, creating interest among record labels. As we've discussed several times on this podcast, 
the feeding frenzy for alternative music at this point was sky high. So, you know, an album from the drummer of Nirvana is obviously going to get a lot, like there's going to be loads of people who want to, want to, you know, jump on that. Yeah. As you can imagine. Um, most of the lyrics on Foo Fighters are nonsensical lines written by Grohl in the 20 minutes before recording began. As Grohl later explained, I had six days to record the whole record. I was just concentrating on, every on everything being as together as possible, having everything be tight and in sync. There wasn't too much time spent sitting in a chair thinking. Grohl would add that the gibberish was deliberate, given that there was too much to say following Cobain's death, and a lot of emphasis was placed on the meaning of the first Foo Fighters album. Speaking to Rolling Stone, he said, Most people would think that all these songs were written starting the day after Kurt died. Everyone wants so badly to make some kind of correlation. I've taken heat for a lot of lyrics I wrote four years ago. It frightens me to think that the line one shot nothing in Weenie Beanie would be taken wrong. I mean, I wrote that in 1991. It's a conversation that me and my friends had Is a it? lot. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to find meaning where meaning didn't exist yeah. in some of these songs. I think, you know we all did it i think we we're all kind of guilty of it mm. um yeah i i used to sort of I, mean, I certainly don't think this now but occasionally i would wonder on i'll stick around i don't i don't owe you anything you know i would wonder if that was sort of an angry response to kurt's death maybe um yeah i mean if you think about how courtney love responded to kurt's death um, he, she got a crowd full of people to call him a, a uh, what was it? Selfish prick. Or Selfish prick or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, because, um, yeah, I mean, and I, I, I'm, if you look at the lyrics to say like, this is the call, you know, fingernails are pretty, fingernails are good. Mm. Seems that all they ever wanted was a marker, uh, a marker or something, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, it is nonsense, gibberish. Um, but, yeah, obviously people would tear apart these songs and try and find some kind of meaning in them. Uh, I think that the Weenie Beanie ones particularly, like, oh, God. Although you can't even fucking hear it in Weenie Beanie. It's so Not covered really. in distortion that yeah. I don't know how anyone even managed to... Figure it out. Realise that that was <laughs> the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Grohl still considered that the things you write down spur of the moment are most revealing. Now I look at them and some of them seem to actually have meaning and revealed that a few songs have lyrics inspired by personal experiences of the last four or five years, with the standout being Big Me, an out-and-out -out love song to Grohl's then-wife Jennifer Youngblood that he described as his favourite track on the album. Contrasting with the aggressive and rebellious themes of Nirvana, Grohl had positive and cheery tunes such as This Is A Call, defined as a hello and a thank you to everyone that had played a key role in Grohl's life. The playful for all the cows and Watershed, with a title referencing Mike Watt and lyrics that described Grohl's love of hardcore and old school punk rock. Uh, Foo Fighters was planned as a very low-key release, with only 100 LP records being pressed after the sessions were finished. Grohl also went to a cassette duplication lab in Seattle and created 100 cassette copies of the session and started handing them to friends for feedback. I'd give tapes to everyone. Kids would come up to me and say, Nirvana was my favourite band, and I'd say, well, here, have this. 
I think I might have made 100 cassettes and I'd give them to people when they'd come over. Around the same time, Eddie Vedder did a pirate radio type show and he played a demo of the song Exhausted. I remember him saying, I love this song. It makes me want to drive off a cliff or something. So Eddie gave me my first big break and then suddenly record companies were calling my house. So yes, um, around this time, Pearl Jam had this fucking wicked pirate radio station that they started mm. up uh, i don't know if you've ever heard any of these broadcasts um i haven't i know of them but i have never heard them if people think our podcasts are long uh <laughs> the um i actually I, I, i've listened to it before i didn't re-listen to it for this but i've i've, I've actually heard the um uh the broadcast from january the 8th 1995 which is when um well the first time that foo fighters songs were played to the public in any forum whatsoever um and it that broadcast has a uh there's a cover of gas chamber by angry simones and there's also yeah really rough version of exhausted really rough version of exhausted um the program was called self-pollution radio but they called the radio station monkey wrench radio yeah now i i re i was desperate to find confirmation of this i just couldn't find it anywhere but bearing in mind that there's a song called monkey wrench on the color and the shape i think it's probably fair to say that that might be a little nod and a thank you to pearl jam and eddie vedder because yeah you know like Eddie was the first person to ever give Foo Fighters any sort of airtime whatsoever. I don't mm. think he even asked Dave Grohl's permission. I think he just sort of did it, you know. Um, but uh, does he say this is Dave Grohl's new band? He it? does. I actually, I, I mean, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to do this, but I do have um, Eddie's what Eddie said beforehand. I can even do my Eddie Vedder impression here. Oh, brilliant! Go um, go. Everyone wants to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I want to do it now. Um, well, this is a rare opportunity to play this to you, and it's two songs by Dave Grohl. As far as I know, he's played everything on these songs. He's played all the instruments, and uh, he played a while back. We recorded a song or two with Mike Watt, and uh, we might even make a couple of calls out before we try to take any in. I think we're going to try and call Watt, and I'm just going to let these Dave Grohl songs fly. Uh, get off your horse and drink your milk <laughs> um yeah part- that's a good that's a good john wayne mate <laughs> that's a good john wayne i think part of the reason why so that that broadcast is four and a half hours long part of the reason why is because they uh eddie vedder speaks so slowly <laughs> i mean mm. i sped that up um but yeah um yeah so he does introduce them as two songs by dave Grohl. i don't think the I'm not sure if the name Foo Fighters was around at that point, but yeah, he just says they're two songs by Dave Grohl. Right. So the version that Eddie played on that Monkey Wrench broadcast was from one of the cassette tapes that Dave Grohl had given out, one of the 100 copies. Uh, but it had a different mix and an altered track listing from the final album. There's actually 14 songs in total on the cassette version. Um and all the songs for the album are on there, bar Ecstatic. Ecstatic isn't on there at all. At all. And in addition, there's Winnebago, Podunk, and Butterflies, um, which are songs that they played a little bit live uh, over around that time. 
Mm. Um, so let's get into this record then, Steve, shall we? Um, shall we? As per, I think I'm going to move over to you and ask you what songs you would like to talk about. Um, this, I think, would have been... Although, well, I mean, I was actually going to say we could start with For All The Cows because for some reason, everyone at my school loved For All The Cows. Oh, yeah. And I don't think For All The Cows is considered like, you know, I'll stick around, this is a cool Big Me, Alone Easy Target. Those first four, I think, are considered like the main big ones. But for some reason... At my school, everyone was like, oh, my God, Dave Grohl's new band. He's got this song for all the cows, for all the cows. And we thought, you know, that and Big Me were sort of, because Big Me was a was a hit and it was on MTV a lot. But we all seemed to gravitate to for all the cows for some reason. But mm. I'm happy to start with Big Me because I think it's probably the biggest song on the record, I'm guessing. Well, I feel like we've gone half in on for all the cows now. So, okay. um, I mean, yeah. speaking of nonsense lyrics for all the cow, I'm not about to blow it now for all the cows and all that. Um, mm. What the fuck? I mean, it doesn't mean, anything. what doesn't mean anything. Why? I don't know why am I even asking? Um, yeah. Who knows? But it was, it was like, to, I heard that and I sort of went, well, this just sounds like something Nirvana would do. But then it kind of doesn't sound like something Nirvana would do because it's a bit too happy, isn't it? It's a bit yeah. too like, yeah. it's got that like loungy, jazzy sort of broom, like that yeah. kind of almost swingy rhythm to it, which makes it feel a bit more upbeat. And and then when it comes in, I mean, the, the quiet, as we spoke about on the Pixies special, Nirvana... Loud, quiet, taking loud, that yeah. qu- that loud quiet loud mm-hmm. dynamic and that is what food fighters do on for all the cows and 100%. it was properly like i i i haven't even really thought about for all the cows because it's as the years have gone on people don't really talk about it as much but it was the song that would get played like when you they used to play like five or six rock songs at a school disco or whatever and they'd play for all the cows and we'd it would be like the lads putting their arms around each other and swaying. And then we'd mosh to the moshy part. Do you know what I mean? And I've just got really nice memories of of, of that happening. Interesting. When I was sort of 15, 16 years old. Um, this song definitely endured. I do remember seeing them on um, the One by One tour. And the only songs um, they played from this album were For All The Cows and This Is A Call. So... It did in, it endure in that way for a bit longer than most of these other songs. I think it stayed in their set for longer. Yeah. Um, well, that. I mean, that's good. That's good to hear because I haven't seen them for the last time. I saw them at Wembley just before Wasting Light came out. I think it's the last time I properly saw the Food Fighters, and they just played. This is a call at the end. That was the only thing they played from yeah. this album. And I was a little bit disappointed that that was the only yeah. thing they played from this record. Um, but yeah, I, I really mm. like For All The Cows. And I always thought of it as one of the sort of bigger songs from the record. And I think it uh, that kind of second half of the record, the, they're not as they're not as big, those songs. I don't feel like they're it's not like the sort of uber mega hits like the first four are on, on, on the first half of the album. I think it, it kind of tapers off into odder territories but then for all the cows is like is the second half of this record's big big moment i think yeah okay um do you think it's the second half's best moment um no no neither do i i think weenie beanie is up there okay because i like how noisy i mean i yeah if actually i fuck it i love weenie beanie yep I, I like Weenie, Weenie Beanie a lot. 
Weenie Beanie is, and uh, particularly, I mean, have you ever seen the footage of them playing at the Phoenix Festival in 1996? Not sure if I have. Right, because they do Weenie Beanie, and Dave Grohl goes, "This one's for Sepultura," and he does he does Weenie Beanie in a Matt's Cavalera like oh, proper like, and it's 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 wicked. And I do remember like Weenie Beanie again. When you're young, it's the, it's the heaviest song on the record, isn't it? Yeah, it's the yeah, most yeah, yeah, abrasive yeah. song on the record. It's between and, it's between Weenie Beanie and Watershed. Yeah, mm. and certainly, like I liked it, but then hearing them do, but recording this, I got on tape someone videotaped somewhere. I taped ITV at the Phoenix Festival, and it was ITV at the Phoenix Festival in 1996 had this incredible, inc- absolutely incredible festival lineup. I'm sure one day when we go back to the glory of 1996, we'll talk about it again. But basically, headlined by David Bowie one night, Neil Young, um, was it Massive Attack or Bjork? Might have been Bjork and Sex Pistols over the mm. four nights, mm-hmm. and that's just like the headliners mm. and. Foo Fighters were sort of midway down the Saturday or something on the same day as Neil Young with like Skunk and Ancy and Stereophonics and Fun Loving Criminals and Terrorvision and loads and loads of good shit. And that the, the Weenie Beanie version where that they played on on that clip of them at the ITV at the Phoenix Festival where they do um it's heavy and then he goes, Okay, this one's for Sepultura. <laughs> is like (laughs) i was like oh my god that's amazing and he even puts the mic up like lemmy like he moves his mic up so you know how lemmy has the yeah yeah yeah. it's fucking wicked and so now every time i listen to it i'm always like this one's for sepultura and it's Oh, that's Correct. awesome. I like Weenie Beanie a lot. I love the riff, the, you know, that riff is fucking brilliant. Um, I think, I mean, we'll talk about it on the next part, but I think um, in terms of those sort of short, sharp, really loud, shouty, punky kind of songs, I guess, mm-hmm. territorial pissings-esque, as uh, critics at the time would have said, um i think there are better ones but i do like weenie beanie a lot i like weenie beanie a lot um shall we go through the big ones uh this is a cool yeah good start yeah yeah really plugging in i love that yeah the plugging in yeah that is really cool yeah um just it makes it quite a i mean the fact this is probably sold me i don't know how many albums it's sold i'm sure it sold a couple of million Mm-hmm. Uh, worldwide or whatever yep. but yeah um but it's such a kind of unassuming start to what has become a very very big rock record yeah and it does set up the whole like the whole rest of the record by just plugging in and do you know what i mean like now i feel like big records have to have big bombastic opening statements yeah and you didn't used to have to do that and i think that's cool and this is a call is it's massive, isn't it? Yeah. Again, I love it, it. It's bright as well. It's not like Nirvana. No. You know, oh, it just sounds like Nirvana. It's too bright to be like a Nirvana song. Yeah. It's it's kind of sugary, and I I really like the fact that it is sort of sweet sounding. It's really interesting. I mean, we'll get into it when we get into the critical reception, but all of the comparisons to Nirvana that uh, they got, um, all of them failed to mention the fact that a lot of this album sounds really bright and breezy. And this is, of course, a really good example of that. Um, but, you know, like to say that it is just like, oh, it's just a 
Nirvana ripoff. It's like, well, no. I mean, in some aspects, you know, the loud, quiet dynamics and stuff like that. And there were certainly some Cobainisms in it. But, you know, I mean, it's such a, it's a fucking awful, crappy criticism to make, really. Um, I love this as a call and I think it's one of my favourites on the record, but I think it's bettered by I'll Stick Around. Yeah. When that drum, when that first opening drum... That is a that is a Dave Grohl drum yeah part that it? drum it couldn't really be anyone else. I used to. I'm no drummer at all, but I used to play that drum part um, uh, at school all the time on the drum kit and drive my music teacher fucking insane with it. Um, I I fucking love our stick around. Um, such a, I mean, yeah. In terms of one two punches. In, in terms of openers i think this is a cool and i'll stick around are just fucking huge especially mm, for an album massive. especially for an album which i mean i don't think it's too me i don't mean it in a mean way but this this is effectively demos like it's crazy to think yeah. that an album this massive really it's demos recorded in six days you know um and the fact that those these songs don't sound massive necessarily because of the production or anything like that. They sound massive because they're brilliant songs. Like it's, and I, I could say that for the majority of the record, almost all of it, but they, they are just huge. I love I'll stick around. It has, has that bonkers video, which has like some awful CGI effects with a virus mm. jumping. <laughs> like it look, it looks, yeah, yeah. It looks awful now. It looks very nice. It does. But, it's quite. It amusing. looks like I don't know. Have you ever seen the the sweater song video by Weezer? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like they just moved Weezer out and changed the <laughs> the lights and moved Foo Fighters in and went right. Just keep on keep on recording. We'll just change the color of the lights. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. The, it's the same thing. They're both pretty bad. It's and Radiohead. Nice. Everybody wants to play guitar. That's exactly, again, it's oh, like yeah. that is the, it's the same fucking video. Yeah. Uh, but then you know, th- there's always been like when you're first starting out, I mean, it's tell- quite telling that those are three of the, the not as big songs on the first album by each mm. one of those bands. Mm. And back in the day, like, you know, it's like metalcore bands playing in, un- <laughs> you know, unoccupied warehouses <laughs> for fucking five years, every video, just a metalcore band in an unoccupied or in a, in a cornfield, you know, <laughs> at a field with their amps playing. And yeah, we always get little things where, oh, that's, that's, that's every video for yeah. fucking, I don't two years or something. I don't think you can look back at it and and objectively go, oh, that's a really good video. But it makes me feel nostalgic, and I love it for yeah. that reason. You know, yeah, I, yeah, I really, yeah, yeah. I, I do, I do enjoy watching that. I, I definitely think... feel far more nostalgic for that than I do for metalcore bands in empty, <laughs> empty <laughs> oh, warehouses. Most definitely. Well, I mean, it goes without yeah. saying. I think with me, um, one video that I think is a great video though, the Big Me video, um, the. Yeah quite famous promo with uh, the sort of fake Mentos uh, television, Mentos? It's Mentos, isn't it? Yeah, Mentos. Mentos television commercial um, with, uh, yeah, Dave Grohl's big cheesy, big toothed grin. Uh, the first time they dipped into comedy, wasn't it, really? Yeah, 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 of course. I mean, the, the, the big comedy video became a massive staple of Foo Fighters, um, especially round kind of there's nothing left to lose era and stuff like that you know they ended up getting tenacious d and didn't they for uh learn to fly and all that sort of stuff yeah um is it low as well where they like cross-dressing 
I can't remember. Can't I don't remember. remember that one. I remember. I mean, Breakout is like. Oh, of course, Breakout yeah. with a with a Jim Carrey film, and it's yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Jim Carrey film. Uh, me myself, me and Irene. My, yeah, great, great film. Is it? <laughs> no, not really. Um, so yeah, Big Me, Dave Grohl's favorite song on the record. Um, your thoughts on Big Me? I like it. Yeah. I yeah. think it's good. Like I, you know, I was, I was, I, I have to say, I, I felt this at the time, and I kind of still feel it now. It's two minutes and twelve seconds. It's mm. a nice enough song. Quite how it's become the big song on the records. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I find quite odd to be honest. I mean, I, I'm well, sure I, the I video, think it, I think the video, video. Yeah, I think yeah. It's the, video. the video's got a lot to do with it, and the fact that it's a very, very easy. I mean, you know, the, again, Nirvana comparisons. Nirvana would never write a song like big me no not in a billion years no not in a absolutely billion years. nothing to do with grunge or nearly even alternative rock i mean i guess it's got something to do with alternative rock because it's a rock song and it doesn't sound like you know white snake or whatever but it's a little bit like um how here comes your man is on pixies debaser mm. sort of sticks mm. out a little bit as being a like the really Doodle. really shy uh, my apologies, do little, thank you. Um, One of Renfrey's picks for classic albums. <laughs> doesn't even know what it's called. Oh come on! I, <laughs> no, I know. No, I'm doing that. I'm doing that thing that people love to do, which is, oh yeah, you don't even know what you're talking about. So oh, yeah, I yeah. just been a couldn't have just been a slip of the tongue. That's the problem with podcasts is that when you when you write when you write these articles, you get to spell check them and take all the stuff out. That's after. true. When we're talking, we might accidentally say something go I, on I, I recorded a two-hour special on uh do little i've never even heard it um <laughs> yeah. uh yes um but yes it reminds me of that in that it, it kind of pops out in that way i think big me is integral to the record because after this is a call and i'll stick around if it went from this is a call to i'll stick around to a lone and easy target to good grief yeah. um yeah. it's that's too many like massive rock songs in a row and i think alone and easy target and good grief would suffer as a result um, because uh, because it's yeah it's just too much too much of that big bombastic rock sound. But putting Big Me in the middle of those two, you know, perfect sequencing. Even though, as I said, these songs were recorded, they were just recorded in they would, the the track listings just record you know the order that the songs were recorded in. Um, but then that probably says something about Dave Grohl's headspace and the sort of the way that he thinks about music as well. I would have thought because. He probably thought he probably wrote, "Oh, this is a call," and then he probably wrote, "I'll stick around." He thought, "I'll try and write something a bit, yeah, you know, quiet now, and Quite then I'll possibly. write a few more, and then possibly, yeah, yeah." yeah. I, I would it wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Yeah, yeah. I like I like Big Me a lot. I like Big Me a lot, a lot. Um, actually, I'm gonna. I probably should have said this before. There isn't a single song on this record that I don't like, and in fact, I okay. love every. I probably love every single song on this record. I think it's fucking great. But um but if I were to rank them all, um, despite Big Me being the big, big, big one, it would be I don't think it'd be bottom, but it'd be near the bottom for me. Mm. Mm. Um but yeah, I still love it. And I love the uh the the Mentos television advert thing. It's just Yeah. It's just funny. It's a good song, it? man. It's just yeah. it shouldn't I don't think, you know, it's not something to get like really excited about. And I think what's funny is we talk a lot about you know, do you want to? Can can you still listen to Sabotage or Buddy Holly or whatever uh, mm -hmm. we've spoken about when they're these big, big songs? And Big Me is one of those ones where I go, 
uh, I don't really have an opinion either way on it. Really, I'm yeah. quite happy. I'm kind of I'm I'm quite happy to listen to it again because it's over so quickly. But it, I'm not, and I don't go oh god when it comes on. No, but I'm never. But I guess because I've never felt as strongly about it as like you know, there was a time where I I would put Smells Like Teen Spirit on repeat and listen to it eight times on the trot over and over and over again, and hence why it might feel a little bit overplayed to me because I rinsed the shit out of it, whereas. I never had that with Big Me, so I don't yeah. even really feel like it's. It feels odd to kind of put that in the same category as something like, you know, Sweet Child of Mine or oh, totally. whatever, and Enter Sandman or whatever. It's not. It's not a big song like that at all. Uh, you no. know, no, 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 it's not in that league in the slightest. Um, I, I, I really like it. I, I think I feel exactly the same as you. I've never, Big Me's never come on, and I've, my reaction has never been yes big me it's like but it's often like oh big me i like this song it's nice nice mm. ditty um alone and easy target yeah i like this a lot this might Love might this song. might be my actual favorite one Ooh. in in uh 2020 nice nice what do you like about it get out get out get out yeah yeah um i love the, the i mean actually something i should say throughout this record and when we talk about big rock guitars in alternative rock and in grunge and everything, and just Dave Grohl often describes Foo Fighters as hard hitting drums and big guitars. What I like about this first album is that it's the, the, not really massive guitars. The, the, that bit where it kind of scrapes back on you down, get in, get a get is it's a, it's a, it's a lot of strings being strummed, yeah. if you like. But uh, but it sounds quite wiry. I mean, I like how, you know, I, I like how Alone and Easy Target sounds like it could be from a Husker Du record. Yes, it's almost jangly, isn't it? Um, I wouldn't mm. I wouldn't quite describe it as jangly, but there's a jangly esque tone to it. Um, there's there, those those strings are being um, kind of really. It's not a chug like no it's not a, like an Alice it's not a Jerry Cantrell chug on those on, like on the riff it is every you know he's really kind of scraping up and down on that fretboard which I think is you know gives it that more sort of indie feeling yeah. and yet it is still heavy yes um and anthemic and big sounding it's a it's a wicked song but yeah but it reminds me of probably things that I didn't even know existed at this point when I first heard this the big like you know like even well i was gonna say even yeah even even in utero which has deliberately kind of gone out of its way to sound lo-fi yeah and i think even in utero sounds bigger than a lot of the guitar parts on foo fighters although totally. the foo fighter songs sound more anthemic because they are like we've said a couple of times brighter breezier happier more uh less confrontational mm-hmm. songs yep absolutely and alone and easy target i think is as close to the bullseye of that balancing act as this album gets i reckon yeah it's a brilliantly like it brilliantly sums up a lot of the songs on this record but also brilliantly sums up why it's such a great song i mean it's fucking nonsense like lyrically and stuff crazy tv dreams might be true not what it seems food and cavities chewing words tear at the seams doesn't fucking mean anything but like it doesn't matter because it's just a fucking banging tune it's just and then when that's when you have that and then that snare goes bam and then you get the big and that's when it's like oh right we're yeah. this is a, this isn't just a weird I a, this, out. 
I'm alone and I'm an easy target. Remember he's waving his oh, arms as he does that as well. Like he's in the fucking Bay City Rollers video. <laughs> <laughs> I love that song so much. Um, mm. Do you know what? Uh, I don't think, I'm not sure if you'll agree with this or not. I like Good Grief as much as I like Alone as, as Alone and Easy Target. Now, this is one of the shocks to me going back to this record, because I have to be honest with you, both of these records, having listened to them to fucking death when I was a kid, I probably hadn't, I mean, Color and Shape, I think I've probably listened to a few times in the, you know, however many years that have gone by. But I hadn't really listened to Foo Fighters, Foo Fighters for, poor God, a really, 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 really long time. A really long last time I listened to it, it was probably on CD to give you some sort of I mean that, that that's a while then is what I'm saying and I listened to it this morning on CD okay that's fair enough but you listen to CDs I don't I do. really listen to CDs do. anymore I've hopefully going to get a CD player beautiful Christmas present which is what I want um yeah and I, I so good grief was always the point where I went ah oh, it does kind of tape a dip after those big four songs because those four songs they are the big four songs on this record mm -hmm. undoubtedly they definitely are and i both of these records i listened to them once one of the like one and a half times in the build-up to this mm -hmm. and good grief was always a song that i went oh yeah and then alone easy target and then it goes down a bit and good grief has, and then you get a couple of songs that i don't think are as good before weenie beanie comes in good grief is fucking great it's i was brilliant. like oh, why didn't i think this is as good as all the others yeah yeah it's wicked it's, it's really really good. brilliant that hook of hated 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 it's yeah. brilliant um the drums on this song are amazing that opening sim not quite as powerful as i stick around but that that the little drum roll is fucking yeah. amazing i love the riff really simple but like it's got a real drive to it it's a proper yes. like driving song it feels like it should it could be on the soundtrack to a cameron crowe film totally it, fe it feels like a song to soundtrack running away from a town that you fucking mm. hate you know mm. um i i love good grief i i don't I, I totally agree with you that the first four songs are the songs that are seen as the big ones on this but i don't really understand why people I, th I think a lot of people have that perception that, oh, yeah, and then it tails off a bit. I, I totally disagree. I think Grease brilliant. Um, it continues with Floaty, which I also fucking love. Your thoughts on revisiting Floaty? Um, I, 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 see, this was the point where I went, yeah, I'm, I, I never really cared for this so much back in the day. And I sort of still don't. To be no, honest. I don't. I I don't have any strong feeling either way. I think it's okay. I think this is okay. Is what I think. This sounds like a sort of. It's one of the times. I mean, you know, that like like I say, I I've been very positive so far. I said I'm going to be very very positive in the second in the second half. I said I'm going to be mostly positive in this first half. But there are points in this record where I go, oh, it's only a demo. Mm. Essentially, this mm. is only a demo, mm. and it's and and to me, it sort of sounds like one. Going back to it today in 2020 i'm not quite sure that floaty as a song particularly i mean if you were a kid hearing this for the first time ever i think there are bits on this where you would listen to this and go these songs are just so great it's undeniable it doesn't yeah. matter how yeah. you know kind of unfinished sounding they often can sound or how sort of um scrappy they are floaty is one of the times where i'm like yeah you know i'm i'm not i don't it doesn't feel entirely 
complete to me or finished or it's a very simple realized. song it's very simple yeah it doesn't feel entirely realized to me is what i would say okay and it's not bad it's not bad i just think you've had five absolute slam dunks and then you get something and you're like this is okay i i i really like it i have to say back in the day particularly i was always surprised it wasn't a single um and i i know i have a history of not choosing singles well obviously as we've discussed <laughs> yeah. but you know in because because of its simplicity and because it's you, you you can sing along to it after hearing the first verse and second uh, first verse and first chorus once you know yeah so I, so it's a bit of an earworm in in that sense mm. maybe earworm's not the right term but it's it's you can certainly sing along to it before you even heard the the track to its finished conclusion you know um yeah that's that's probably true i mean uh, i mean you've said before that just having something catchy doesn't necessarily make it a good song and i think true i think what what the what floaty is is basically i think it's the kernel of a uh, the kind of kernel of an idea of a of a, a chorus with more to be brought out from it i I don't know i just it doesn't it's not bad i just don't i think that's kind of all it is is just it's a bit catchy no fair enough fair enough um we sort of discussed weenie beanie already unless you have anything else to say on that just for sepulture in it sepulture in it um (laughs) now oh george we're definitely getting into um uh deep the deeper territory here but i was kind Mm. of i don't think oh george is anyone's favorite song on uh, this album um what i was surprised to learn is um i saw i read an interview where dave Grohl that he says he fucking hates this song right okay Um, i mean yeah i mean again for me this is just another album track i really like it Mm. i really like i'm not saying it's a highlight i'm not saying oh my god it's i'll stick around good or this is a cool good yes it is an album track but i i if if it was if it was suddenly erased from my copy of this album, I would be very put out by that. I I, I really like it. It's got a really weird, odd guitar solo in it. Um, yeah. I, there's not loads to say on it, but I I just I'm just very keen on it. I, I yeah, it isn't the best, but it's certainly far from the worst song on the record. I think. Um, and to for to hear Dave Grohl say that he really doesn't like it anymore, and he said, you know, uh, some of those songs were really, really rushed, and Oh George was a big one uh, that was rushed. I I was quite surprised that he felt that way about it, but yes, mm. um, I'm not as surprised. Okay, okay, is what I would say. Right. I don't, I I don't. I'm I'm probably like you, like I'm after Weenie Beanie. I think in between Weenie Beanie and For All the Cows, which I've already mentioned, is two of the ones that I really, really like. I think Oh George is... Uh, I wasn't going to say a significant step down. I don't even think it's a significant step down. I think maybe it's just because it's in between two of the songs that I really, really love on the record. Fair enough. I don't think it's as good as that. But, I mean, I don't think it's a bad... I don't think this is a bad song. I do actually prefer it to Floaty. Okay. Yeah. I, I prefer it to Floaty. I... I but I don't, I'm not like, oh yeah, great. Do you know what I mean? I don't really have, I, it's one of those ones where there's a few, a couple, there's a couple of songs in this record that I don't have really particularly strong opinions either way of them. Mm-hmm. And I almost like Big Me's always one of them. Mm-hmm. Big Me, Floaty, Oh George, and, um, well, we'll get to, you know, the other one. 
Um, we've sort of done for all the cows already, haven't we? Mm-hmm. So yep. ecstatic, the only song to feature another person on it in with Greg Dooley from Afghan Wicks. Yeah. Uh, I this is not one of the ones that I this is wicked, I think. I love this song. Yeah. This is fucking wicked. This yeah, is one really of my favourite songs on the record. It's yeah, not my favourite. Great. But it mm. is it is fucking great. I love we'll go into this later, but I love um when Dave Grohl's doing that very lethargic vocal. I love I I love that. We'll talk about that mm. again in a moment. Um mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I think that kind of uh all static mm. we all left like that kind of breathy very like chilled vocal i just think is fucking awesome i really really like it uh yeah. watershed i think you'll find this controversial remfrey okay but i think watershed is the worst song on this record um i don't find it that controversial because mm. it may well be my least favourite song on the record as well. Not that I don't like it. Um, I mm. do. And I particularly like that riff. Um, but uh, it does feel like we've already had Weenie Beanie. Do we really need this again? Yeah. Now, I mean, the reason I say you might find it controversial is because I'm probably thought of the two of us who would be the one who I've already said the reason I don't like recent Foo Fighters is because I like Foo Fighters. To, I like it when they when they're heavier. And this yes. is definitely, as you mentioned, probably the, the joint heaviest song yeah. on the record. Yeah. It's just not that good a song. I yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's terrible. I, I think compared to the other songs, it's it's a step down. Yeah, I think I think it's massive. I think it's really really throwaway. I I I, I do you know what it is? I think it doesn't sound. Dave Grohl does not sound comfortable. Like that whole, it's almost trying to be. Whereas Weenie Beanie is just, or something like White Limo, is just. Yes. It's almost fun in how aggressive it is. Yes. It's almost yes. like. Rah! whereas this feels like it's trying to be a bit angular and it's trying to be a bit it's got you know the, i want to listen to flower head yeah, like that yeah. sounds like it's trying a bit too hard for me yeah, it sounds like something kurt it's the sort of thing that kurt would pull off but dave grohl in the same way as i don't think kurt would pull off big me i think kurt would pull off watershed and i don't but i don't think dave can Mm. yeah no actually i think that's a very astute point actually interestingly it's one of the few songs that's quite easy to um gather meaning from as well um mm. uh skinny as a spit pan dealing with the shit plan playing with my bad hand just another another rock band take that to the man and call it a check trapped within a contract so you know just, i mean it's not the most it's not the deepest song in the world but you can kind of figure out roughly what it's about just being trapped in a contract and like yeah, yeah you know shit rock yeah and i think that again like you know like oh you know i'm fucking i'm an underground i don't want to be part of your system man like i think yeah. that's not the foo fighter's strong so that's not dave grohl's strong suit i don't think yeah yeah no fair enough i i i probably uh, just looking at the track listing yes it's probably it is the worst song on this record isn't it but mm. I think so. I still, I personally still don't mind it. I'm, I, but, but yes, uh, fair enough. It is the worst song on the record. Um, mm-hmm. For me, the best song on this album is Exhausted. It's um, a great song. I fucking love this song so much. Um, 
again that really like i mean his vocal delivery he does sound exhausted with his vocal delivery it's that very kind of like chilled um i'm not around that much running you know and the sort of uh disparity between the really laid back vocal and the really fuzzed up guitar like it's so overdriven um i just love that and then when it goes into that like riff it's just absolutely amazing and i am a sucker for a fake ending a sucker <laughs> i am a yeah. sucker for a fake ending and the way that this song just like it rings out and it goes about a minute of the song is just feedback but then when the riff comes back in it is glorious i love this song so much it's got an almost shoegazy type vibe yeah i was gonna say that um i've all I, I in fact to be honest with you the one thing i was gonna bring out about that this was never a kind of album highlight for me back in the day it wasn't and back I think, in the day no mm. Mm, no but listen to it now i'm like oh yeah, it is really good and i think it was because being someone who didn't listen to or didn't know anything about shoegaze and particularly in 1995 that was not cool anymore not at all you know that 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 was not cool if you think grunge was on the in the sort of process of being you know ushered out the back door i mean shoegaze was long gone at that point and so the only vague you know the couple of bands that i would have seen on top of the pops three four years beforehand who were doing that who i didn't really get you know at the time um hearing something which had a similar sort of sound to it i was just like oh no it's just a fucking weird mm-hmm. sort of slow crappy one at the end and i always used to get to ecstatic and be like that's the end of the album really right 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 mm. it is but funny. now yeah. yeah yeah it's funny because this song like yeah back i, I don't think i bought this album 95 but i probably got it 96 97 maybe um and um back then i would have been like oh yeah exhausted it's all right you know but over the years it has crept up and up and up and it is now it's not comfortably my it's definitely it is my favorite song on the record um i mean i you know this is a call i'll stick around alone and easy target you know all worthy mentions as well but i i just I just love this song now. I love it so much. I have to say, Foo Fighters are very, very, very good at final tracks. Very, very good. Last songs on records. Yeah, I can only think of a couple of others. But... Well, you've got, well, we'll go into The Colour and Shape one later. Uh, MIA. <laughs> MIA is a really good song and there's nothing left to Yeah, that's Co- the other one. Come Back on One by One. Not a great record, but that is a brilliant song. Can't um, remember it. Oh, so good. Um, yeah, they're very, very good. I think Home on Echo Silence and Patience and Grace is a beautiful last song. Uh, but we're getting into territory, which you're probably less interested in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this record was released on Independence Day in 1995. Grohl licensed the album to Capitol Records, who had just signed Supergrass, The Jesus Lizards, and The Smoking Who? <laughs> the Jesus <laughs> Who are the Jesus? You mean the Jesus? You trying to say the Jesus? Lizard? I said the Jesus listens. Yeah, I do apologise. Yeah, my, wow, my you mouth tried to. My mouth failed to be there. <laughs> Sounded uh, like you had a bloody stroke halfway through saying that. Maybe, maybe I did. Um, uh, they just signed Supergrass, the Jesus Lizards, 
and the Smoking Popes, to name a few. So Capitol Records, I mean, you know, that was the caliber of bands they were signing at that time, 1995, Mm -hmm. you know, not massive, massive, massive kind of label. But then he released it, he licensed it to Capitol and released it through his own label, Roswell Records. Uh, He picked the name in keeping with the science fiction theme of the record, a reference to the city of Roswell, New Mexico. New Mexico. Goodness me. We've chosen the wrong day for me to record this podcast, haven't we? With my pronunciation all over the place. Um, It's a reference to the city of Roswell, New Mexico, known for the Roswell UFO incident of 1947. That theme continued uh, even further with the album cover photographed by Grohl's uh, then-wife Jennifer Youngblood featuring a Buck Rogers XZ38 disintegrated pistol. Nice. Some reviewers considered the gun on the cover as insensitive given Kurt Cobain died by shooting himself but Grohl dutifully disregarded it as just a coincidence most people don't think it's a reference to anything specific but that the but that the fact that I did it was tasteless says Grohl to me it's a toy it has nothing to do with anything I love kitschy 40s and 50s space toys I thought it would be nice plain cover nothing fancy then I thought I'd catch so much flack, but everyone said it would be okay if I made sure everyone knew it was just a toy. People have read so much into it. Give me a fucking break. <laughs> <sighs> I mean, can you imagine having so much scrutiny on, you know, this project? That, like, I have to say, that never occurred to me personally. No, never. Like, never. Like, I mean,. <sighs> that's like something twitter would do yeah well but in the 90s when in 1995 when you know yeah not every single solitary syllable that you you said was you know somehow proof of why you're you hate trans people or something do you know what i mean like and yeah here we are but i guess yes the scrutiny under dave grohl you know a year after the death of Kurt Cobain I, mate like I said earlier we all did it I mean I didn't do that but you did mm. all go well what's it going to be about where's the little mention of Kurt where's the you know well I well well I do think there's a difference between talking about it in the playground and fucking writing it in a magazine though you know I mean mm. uh there's some yeah there's some of these I've read a lot of um articles from this time and some of the the ways that um Cobain's death was written about and and you know the Ringo star of grunge and all that kind of thing it was just like I wonder if now's a good time to re- read actually just to sort of illustrate my point this is a this is a a um uh, a positive review of um Nirvana's second official show from Kerrang um, but the manner in which they kind of talk about Kurt Cobain, bearing in mind he had um, he had been dead less than a year. You mean Foo Fighters second show? I'm so sorry. You Foo Fighters second Nirvana. show. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, it wouldn't be a great show if it was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> so the headline is No Fallin. So. Uh, Stan first ex-Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl returns fronting his new outfit Foo Fighters and shows that he might well have been wasted behind the legendary Seattle Combos drum kit. The big K 
brings you eyewitness accounts of the first two Foo Fighters shows ever. Just to point out, this is the point in Kerrang's career where they spell everything with a fucking K. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, I, remember, I remember that. Oh my god, it's <laughs> so ridiculous. So, so this um, this this review is in a section of the magazine called Concert, aka k-o-n-c-e-r-t it was oh, fucking it, risible anyway uh so the Foo fighters at velvet elvis seattle saturday march the 4th you were the drummer in the world's top rock band you sat behind the man widely acknowledged as the leading songwriter of his generation then he killed himself you're out of work and left to pick up the pieces not that you need to worry too much about the money but anyway you've already been writing and recording your own songs for a few years but kept them to yourself until now Whatever, you're red, you've already had a good run for your money. But your new band turns out to be every bit as exciting and vital as your last. Believe it. Kurt Cobain has already cashed in his own chips. Dave Grohl's had a little flutter and is about to collect the winnings of his own. Big time. Turns out Dave Grohl's been the best kept secret in rock. There's 150 people crammed into this tiny theatre. Outside, there are people still queuing around the block. Dave and colleague Pat Smear wheel on their amps themselves, a far cry from the heady Nirvana days, but they hardly seem to mind. Smear looked like a French punk, just can't shake off his Cheshire cat grin. It stays pinned to his face throughout the show. Seems even he can't believe how good it is. The four-piece, completed by Nate Mendel and William Goldsmith from Seattle's Sunny Day Real Estate, has spent the past couple of weeks learning songs from Dave's demo in which he played all the instruments himself, and in such short time that they've already got them down perfectly. It's strange see seeing Dave pull on a Les Paul, but he's well at ease with both this and in his role as frontman. He could have been fronting a band for years. He plugs in his guitar and then the Foo Fighters lift off. Working, working with that set list, they burst through nine songs, reaching optimal attitude with the closing exhaustive sick um there's not a duff track to be heard and all the speculation that Grohl's solo work sounds nothing like nirvana can be discounted too there's several here which wouldn't be out of place on any of their lps but that's not to say he's trying to be like cobain it's just that they both come from a similar punk rock mixing bubblegum pop background background both exceptional songwriters sharing the same ability to follow a killer more thrash with a gentle well-crafted pop song all that Grohl lacks is Cobain's teetering sense of danger. Still, he can well do without it. After all, look what it did for its last owner. Oof. Feels a bit tasteless, doesn't it? Yeah. You bit. know? Um, yeah, as I say, less than a year after Cobain died. I think opening with, you know, a very kind of like, oh, you, you were the drummer in the world world's greatest band and then your songwriter killed himself and then it's just i mean this is kind of what music press was like back then but i think i don't think that sort of thing would be printed now especially in kerrang no probably not to be fair i mean well it's funny actually to, to bring it up to sort of date to what's going on at the moment you've got i mean recently metal hammer did an interview with marilyn manson yeah and tried to ask him about some things yeah and marilyn manson didn't want to talk about it yeah and that caused all manner of a sort of hoo-ha. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, I, I understand. I mean, the, the dude who did it, Dave Everly, who, who we both know and have, mm. have worked with, he was probably writing for Kerrang at this time. So he is from that school of like, you know, you, you, you talk to the people about things that you want to talk about and you just, but you just can't anymore. I mean, the, the, the problem is, is, you know, as Metal Hammer found out from, uh, you can read it all online, the amount of back and forth between legal wranglings, their yes. legal team, the Marilyn Manson legal team. People, if they don't want to talk about stuff now, they just won't talk about it. And 
you know, people are much more careful and litigious now. There's there seems to be far more to lose in general. Mm -hmm. You could be pretty loose lipped back in the day, couldn't you? Mm -hmm. You could be pretty kind of you know, you could say something and there's not a hundred thousand people on Twitter or on Facebook ready to Google it and correct you. Mm -hmm. You could probably get away with being slightly insensitive and not having someone immediately go, excuse me, I thought that was very, very insensitive. Mm. Doesn't mean that they didn't. I mean, they might have got letters into Koran going, I thought that was a bit insensitive. They just look at them, screw them up and throw them in the bin if they want, or they print it and let people make up their own mind. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what's better or worse, really. I mean, I did listen to that. I was like, oh, fucking hell. I, I, I found it weirdly... I found it really weirdly distasteful. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying we're in a better position now or or, or 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 a better position then. I'm merely commenting on like, as I said, I've read loads of stuff from this time, and there's so mm. much stuff around Cobain's death. Like sometimes I kind of go, I read something and I think you do realise you're talking about a real person who died in a really tragic way, and you know, like. Um, the, the amount of times that I hear kind of uh, that I've read Kurt Cobain being described as like, um, you know, uh, grunge junkie Kurt Cobain killed himself, blah, 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 you know, and it's just like, fucking hell, man. Like, mm. it's just, it's just. <laughs> and yet people will endlessly tell you how much better it was. But all oh, those magazines used to be so good back in the day and now they suck or whatever. You see like shit of people slagging off Metal Hammer and crying, oh, I wish it was the old days. And yet they're exactly the same people who are going, oh, we should all have respect for each other and all this and think, well, you've just got a really, really bad memory or you have chosen to forget all of those things. Yeah. You, it's, you just don't want to like something. It's it's weird. I think, I think cer certainly I think um, the press was braver back then. But I also think it was kind of more more foolhardy. Like I say, I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just making the comparison points. I mean, just mm. underneath this review, uh, there's a kind of box out which says Seattle after Kurt. And it goes through loads of bands that they have, uh, you know, now turn to pages 26 to 30 for an exclusive Seattle update. And one of the is <laughs> they've mentioned Tad, right? And all they say for Tad are fat men bounce back. Now, <laughs> now, the least thing of Tad is a big guy, but I don't think anyone would be like, like say anything like that now. You know, it's like so ridiculously insensitive. Um, mm. Yeah, it's amusing looking back at this stuff, but uh, at the same time, when it's, it's, it just feels a little bit distasteful, I suppose. But anyway, mm. Mm. there you go. Um, once it became clear that Foo Fighters was not going to be released that, a release that would fly under the radar, Grohl formed a band to support it and tour it. He spoke to Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic about joining the group, but they decided against it. Grohl said, we talked about it and then it just didn't happen. For Chris and I, it would have felt really natural and really great, but for everyone else, it would have been weird and it would have left me in a really bad position. Then I really would have been under the microscope. Um, yes, absolutely. He would have been. If you look at the uh, ridiculous, um, <laughs> the, that whole thing of like when Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney's the new singer in Nirvana kind of thing. And in reality, he's just sang one song with Chris 
and obviously Alec and Dave Grohl, you know, and definitely and Pat Smear, yeah. uh, and it's definitely not a Nirvana song. Uh, it's probably the worst song on that Sound City uh, album, I would say. Um, yeah, it's not not the best. No, it's not great. It's pretty meh. Um, instead, Grohl recruited bassist Nate Mendel and drummer William Goldsmith, both of the recently disbanded Seattle group Sunnydale Real Estate. Ah, Sunny Day Real Estate, how I love thee. Grohl had heard that the band was about to break up and went down to see one of their final shows. He couldn't help noticing the band's rhythm section and sought to bring them on board. Sunny Day Real Estate had been label mates of Nirvana. They released Diary on uh, Sub Pop. Um, They initially broke up after releasing just that album uh, and a posthumously released collection of songs uh, that were packaged together and called LP2. According to William Goldsmith, Sunnydale Real Estate frontman Jeremy Enoch spent two months in his room without talking to anyone, and when he came out, he was born again. Finally, he got so freaked out that he quit. A month later, when Enoch changed his mind and attempted to reform Sunnydale Real Estate, Mendel and Goldsmith were already confirmed Foo Fighters. I have to say... I mean, I'm sure he didn't just think this, but it's always funny to me when it goes, oh, Dave Grohl went to see Sunday Day Real Estate and he was really, he was really like, wow, what a great rhythm section. That's what you thought from watching Sunday Day Real Estate? I mean, Jeremy is an incredible presence. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he thought that as well. I just oh, always yeah, think yeah, it's yeah. funny. How you, go, <laughs> you know, it's like going to watch fucking, I don't know. So going to watch Rage Against the Machine and going, I really like their flag they've got in the background. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but that's that's where Dave Grohl was at that time because he yeah, he yeah, yeah. knew he he knew that he needed to put a band together. He knew it was going to be one of their last shows, and he was like, oh, actually, they'd be a really good rhythm setting, you know. So so yeah, I can understand. <laughs> Guess he's Slipknot and going, man, Craig is amazing, isn't he? <laughs> Uh, although Sunny Sunny Day Real Estate do, you know, they do have no, a great no, no, no. section. The thing yeah. is, the thing is, obviously, those are bad comparisons because yeah. Rage's Machine's flag and Craig from Slipknot, <laughs> in, as a live presence, I'm sure in the studio he does lots of things, but as a live presence, don't really bring that much. Whereas, yeah. yes, they're really yeah. start, the Sunny Day Real Estate. It's just that it's just that because Jeremy is such a sort mm. of a, enigmatic performer, mm, mm. the idea that you would see that and go, oh, that's, "There's some guy in the way of this like drummer who's." <laughs> To the rhythmless section <laughs> yeah well we'll get into that uh, we'll get into uh, next that. time um mm. despite initially retiring from music after cobain's death nirvana touring guitarist pat smear and former member of the germs joined a second guitarist despite initially retiring after the death of cobain and germs singer darby crash uh from a heroin overdose um yeah i mean <laughs> if you've been in two bands where the front person had died you probably would want to uh retire from music um, oh yeah he's had, he had a rough old ride Pat Smith, had a he? very rough ride yeah 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 uh, but Grohl persuaded him to join the band he made the point on the back and forth documentary from 2011 brilliant documentary about Foo Fighters that all mm. members of the band had come from bands that had dis- disintegrated prematurely which was something I'd never really had never really occurred to me but um yeah if you think about it in those terms uh they did all have that in common Despite Grohl being the album's only contributor, the liner notes included a picture of the full band at Capitol's insistence. Grohl told Rolling Stone in an article from October 1995, I don't consider myself a frontman at all. Out of the four of us, I'm probably the least charismatic of everyone. Mm, I don't think that's the case. Uh, Out of of, of those four? (laughs) No. (laughs) 
I, I love him, but Nate Mendel doesn't scream charisma to well, me. Well, no, I was going to say that, that definitely. I mean, Pat Smear, maybe you can go. I mean, you watch them play in that Brixton Academy show and Pat Smear's dressed like sort of 1970s leather yeah, daddy. Yeah, in yeah. Me. And you go, well, yeah, okay, Pat Smear. If you look at them on stage and you knew nothing about any of their backgrounds or anything at all, you would go, that guy's the the star like totally. the dragon the, the dragon or the you know the angus young or whatever but i mean the other two william goldsmith and nate mendel yeah yeah like but, bless them yeah oh brilliant like brilliant brilliant people but i don't think they're like mr charisma are they <laughs> no. um you mentioned that brixton academy show my ex went to that brixton academy show i jealous. was offered a ticket for that but i was too scared to go to brixton i turned down dookie on insomniac Soundgarden on uh, down green, on the green, upside green day. green day on insomniac yeah who did i say dookie on insomniac dookie on insomniac yeah. we, we, green both, day on we in- both do it ladies and gents we both do it. i know yeah, human beings do it by <laughs> human the way. Beings do it. you yeah. fucking do it um <laughs> yeah uh green down insomniac Soundgarden on down on the upside supported by moby Oh yeah, and Foo Fighters at Brixton. Have I told you my, my friend's story? Oh God, <laughs> no! <laughs> Never mind. Carry on. Well, there you saw a bald man in Tesco. That's it. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. So upon its release, Foo Fighters earned positive reviews, praising its songwriting and performances, and was also a commercial success, becoming the band's second best-selling album in the United States. It also peaked within the top five of charts of the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, so let's go into some critical appraisal. I have, Steve, in front of me the Kerrang! review from uh, July 1995, written by Paul mm-hmm. Rees. Um, oh, my God. Sorry, I've just noticed the K thing again. <laughs> they fucking love that, didn't they? God. I could only see half of this page, okay? But... 4K. They're talking about when <laughs> when someone died and he overdosed on crack cocaine and they both spelled it with K. <laughs> so 4Ks is killer. That's fine because that's how you spell killer. 3Ks is competent with a K. Fucking yeah. hell. Uh, one is crap, surely. Yeah, one is crap. I can't quite see what two is. Anyway, bloody... Oh, God. What? What's five then? Uh, I can't see it on this page. I've I've only got half the page in front of me. I'll go Um, and find that. I will find this for a future special, everyone. Don't worry. Not only that, the headline is Fooking Great. (laughs) Which is dreadful. Um, So much better, weren't they? Magazines are so much better. (laughs) They're so much better then. Um, So... Just over a year on from the death of Kurt Cobain, ex-Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl returns with Foo Fighters. Could the quartet equal the million-selling success of the Seattle grunge legends? We think so. He could have gone either way, tried to rewrite former glories or disappeared up his own arse. Thankfully, Dave Grohl has done neither. Foo Fighters is more than strong enough to stand or fall on its own merits. The re-emergence of the first of the remaining Nirvana duo is bound to attract huge amounts of interest and bullshit. Foo Fighters have been damned on both counts by the misleading Nirvana with more Beatles and less Black Sabbath advance word. Interesting. Mm. To set the record straight, Foo Fighters cannot fail to evoke Kurt Cobain's memory, whether it be through Grohl's ragged howl of a voice or the way a number of its songs go soft, soft, loud. But Grohl was playing in much the same musical ballpark with Washington DC's Scream before he or anyone else had heard Nirvana and never mind. 
both had a, had as much about as much to do with Black Sabbath as the Mormon tabac- tab- Tabernacle Choir. End of story. To Foo Fighters, the album. Side one is fantastic. The first track, This Is A Call, takes 30 seconds to uncork the first great hook. Grohl's and Pat Smear's guitars ushering the opening verse into a blistering pop chorus that sounds like the Beach Boys played through a blowtorch. Interesting that he seems to think that um, Pat Smear played on this record. I guess he didn't read the press notes. Mm. There's a there's a reason why you should read the press notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> not always <laughs> when you can be bothered um well certainly for something like this if that was dave Grohl's new band i'd read the press notes for that for fuck's sake <laughs> when it's like oh it's the it's a new in flames album i'm not reading the fucking press notes for that anyway oh it's heavy it's heavier and more melodic no, fuck off no it's not it's shite is what it's gonna be i know what it's gonna be i'll continue uh, I'll stick around takes a while longer to reach the same peak. The snaking, breathy, breathy verses twice threatening to explode before they run into a wall of thick, malicious guitars. Grohl screens the refrain, I don't owe you anything, as if he's on the verge of bursting several major arteries. It sounds like some kind of personal exorcism. Big Me, which follows, would be a harmless bit of ear candy by comparison were it not for the fact that the central melody sticks like glue. It falls comfortably between the teeth-gritting roar of I'll Stick Around and the frantic lurch of Alone in an Easy Target, the frenzied rush of Good Grief and the spacious intensity of Floaty. On all three, the guitars cut like cheese wire through some thrilling melodic twists and turns. The decision to simply remix Grohl's original demos was a stroke of genius. Here particularly, Foo Fighters hurtle along with a white-knuckle sense of urgency. The tidal wave of scruffy noise that is Weenie Beanie is in- indicative of the record's second half, more out on a limb. Grohl's vocals sound like a drowning man hollering down a loud hailer. His guitar is like a road drill, which probably explains why it's the most nerve-jangling two-minute blast since Territorial Pissings. Oh George, for all the cows ecstatic and watershed, each pick their way through dense guitars, incomprehensible lyrics and hazy melodies like they're being constructed on the spur of the moment, every uncomfortable stumble compensated by a needle-sharp moment of clarity. Foo Fighters is played out by Exhausted, winding up from a migraine drone to a bone-breaking hail of feedback. It will sell by the million. It deserves to. Five hmm. Ks. What do you think of that? Classic, that 5K will be. The, yeah, yes, the it will be. will be classic, classic with a K. Classic with a K, of course it will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What uh, do I think about that? Yeah, um, I think that is pretty good. I think at the time, but most people probably felt that i know mm. you know we were all like well me and my mates all love this record yeah i think we would have quite happily given it a five we were delighted to hear these songs uh i'm not sure i would give it a five in 2020 personally mm-hmm. but that doesn't make it a bad record mm-hmm. still a very very good record um yeah but but you know <coughs> for the most part that's a pretty good review i think yeah yeah i think it's pretty good it's paul reese um yes i think it's pretty good um by contrast melody maker robert christigou (laughs) (laughs) oh no oh we'll get to him uh melody maker this is their review of the foo fighters album from john azelwood and what dave Grohl's children will one day have to ask him did you do in nirvana he'll be able to look them square in the eyes and tell them what he didn't do He didn't commit that most unfortunate of suicides. He didn't change his name to celebrate some squalid civil war. And he hadn't even joined in time for Bleach, the debut album. He played drums, expertly if truth be told, but that's all he did. Now he's got his own band. 
They have a big fat major label deal, but as those but as those few who heard Carl Palmer's PM, any Ringo Starr record, John Bradbury's JB All Stars or Topper Hedden's album would attest, the portents for Foo Fighters are not great. Grohl has taken the wise man's approach. He stopped drumming and recruited men who know their way around the block. Ex-Nirvana helper Pat Smear on guitar, drummer William Goldsmith and bassist Nate Mendel, Mandel, spelt there, of sub-pop hopeful Sunny Day Real Estate, but won't eclipse the leader. Foo Fighters sound wise too, sufficiently like Nirvana to serve as a reminder where they came from, but not so blatant that they'll be pinned down as copyists. Foo Fighters are grunge quite light, despite the rather self-conscious feedback and exhausted, not with the country or pop leanings of, say, Soul Asylum, but with harder sounding songs rendered accessible by layers of melody, much of it descended directly from Roger McGuinn if he'd had a fewer strings. Two songs stick out, encapsulating where Foo Fighters are and what they might become. The opening, This Is A Call, is outstanding, has lyrics about fingernails, and it's what Grohl fought the grunge wars for. His voice is, as, is at its most commanding here, confidently issuing a call to arms while wrapped in all sorts of those manly melodies. That much of the rest of the album sounds like an anticlimax is more a reflection of This Is A Call's quality than an intrinsic lack of worth, but if they build upon this song, then Foo Fighters will do great work. Alone and Easy Target is tougher, one for the mosh pits of the American heartland as it digs a memorable chorus out of squalling, brooding verses. It's the grunge, slow, fast, slow template to be sure, but it's so well executed and so full of fight that Grohl has marked his territory like a cat urinating on next door's fence. He can do this stuff and he can do it under his own steam. Elsewhere, Foo Fighters yield their charms in more isolated instances. The ferocious drums on our stick around, the pleasing hummability of Big Me, and exhausted surplus energy. But there's much wasted bluster, a few too many blind alleys, and for all the cows is come as you are with a better title. <laughs> Le- ah, leave, wow. leave comments for the end, Steve. Leave comments for the end. Uh, but but yes, we will come on in that. Too much may be placed upon Foo Fighters, expectations which Grohl never regarded as a songwriter or vocus hardly deserves or needs. These expectations may prove to be his undoing, but just as likely right now, they may yet be his making. He's done what he can. Three stars. You obviously want to talk about that for all the cows come as you are. Terrible. I that is a what? terrible comparison. That's a terrible comparison. You have just any like. There's some really, really stupid things that has been said in 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 that uh, review. But oh, that yeah. kind of, but that mass. I mean, that sums it up for me completely. That is. Uh, here's the thing. As, I, as you're reading that, I was thinking, okay, so at this point, Melody Maker, they'd had a go at you know jumping on grunge like most people did. I mean, you know, it's it was and is fairly rare. I think for the enemy or the melody maker to really dig into heavier music punk and hardcore and rock and metal and stuff like that so when they do and when they like it um because it's not really something they listen to a lot i mean i guess it's like to kind of compare it to i'm not throwing you under the bus here mate i'll include <laughs> myself in this as well because me and you you know as a as a pairing don't listen to loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of hip-hop mm-hmm. it means that when we do review a hip-hop record our frame of references are more limited are, than they would be a little time. bit more yeah, limited yeah, yeah. which means there might That's be times fair. where people have gone like why are you comparing run the jewels to clipping or whatever and it's like well sure. we're comparing it because that's it, we're aware that they're different but yeah you know we, we don't really um i mean i, I guess you 
more specifically would go well that's what i've that's the that's the comparative point that i have for it yeah. for example yeah. yeah um and and the thing is is that then when they turn on those things so when grunge in 1995 isn't cool anymore because all that guys listen to is probably pearl jam and nirvana and a couple of alice and chain songs i would say you hear for all the cows and you just hear the quiet bit at the start and you go, what's a quiet Nirvana song? Come as you are. Okay, right. They sound the same. Yeah, don't they? Yeah. And you go, you don't, you don't, you don't have any, you know, you're re- you, you're obviously really struggling t- for some sort of reference point for what this is. To say Dave Grohl just played drums in Nirvana and yeah, he played them. I mean, that, that kind of is true, but it shouldn't be, that's I mean, painted like an insult. Yeah, exactly. He paints that as an insult. You were the drummer in Nirvana, or when when I mean, and particularly today, when if Dave Grohl's kids asked him what he did for a living, well, they know what he did for a living. Everybody knows what he did for a living. He's one of the most famous musicians on planet Earth. Well, I wanted to read this review because I think it goes to show, like, there were a few reviews like this, and there are a lot of people, a lot of critics who were just basically sort of going. It's that sneery thing, isn't it? Of like, oh, the drummer of Foo Fire, uh, the drummer of Nirvana, as if he's going to be able to do anything, you know. And like, whatever you think of Foo Fighters, he fucking plays stadiums. I mean, Foo Fighters are one of the biggest rock bands in the world. Of course they are, yeah. They're fucking huge, you know. Mm. Like, in modern times, they are one of the biggest rock bands in the world. And, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, if you told, told John Azelwood that in 1995, he probably would have laughed in your face. But, you know... Mm. Um, I'm sure that week he was telling everyone how Echo Belly were going to be the biggest band on the on the in the planet, and, and that's quite. sort of that's that's um, you know I think when we're my my sort of sneeriness for the NME and those publications that I I probably still, I don't really have so much anymore, but because I don't really pay that much attention to them, but certainly when they were a bigger deal back in the day, and I used to look at it and go. I mean, you're talking about Deftones. Like, I mean, the the, the classic de- Deftones just sound like an Iron Maiden ripoff. They're rubbish, and you yeah. won't. They won't be around in a year's time. Oh, but here's Bentley Rhythm Ace, the greatest. Do you know what I mean? And whoever wrote that, you're like, mate, mate, where's Gorky's Zygotic Monkey today? Mm. They're not playing fucking Wembley or Ali Pali like Deftones are. Yeah. They're not winning albums of the year like Deftones are. Yeah. But you, you, you got. You got you bought into the hype, mate. You yeah. bu- you bought into the hype. You just did. Exactly. Um, and I think that's kind of this is somebody going back on you know, your it's whatever's flavour of the month, and grunge was not flavour of the month in nineteen ninety five. No It was something to be kind of like, no, 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 this is done. He yeah. was probably he was probably wetting himself at the idea of, you know, the blur of the oasis. I was about to say Britpop was just about being ushered in wasn't it at this mm. point so yeah i mean we we talked about that a bit in if you go and listen to the park life special which is the only time we've really kind of properly delved into that mm. explosion of that stuff but certainly for me by 1995 i started to realize that you know that was that was the thing yeah and grunge was quote unquote dead or whatever yeah apparently so um as you can imagine there were plenty of i mean i've done a couple already but there were plenty of uh comparisons to nirvana um dave brown of entertainment weekly considered that Grohl's songs pack the riffy wallop of unpolished nirvana demos and his voice is kurt cobain's lunging over the top passion 
uh, writing for Spin, Terry Sutton stylistically compared the album to Nirvana's second album, Nevermind, saying that the album's first half owes much to Nevermind and it's tempting to hear it in the way Nevermind's taught us to hear. Uh, you've just done a shake of the head there. Uh, I, I, I agree. It's not. It's, I don't think it's got loads to do with Nevermind, has it? I mean, only as much as the, the, it did to everyone. I mean, I think... Well, they're both rock albums. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that's... that's. I mean, I, I, I think... 16 stone by bush has more to do with nevermind i agree i agree than than foo fighters and uh, i think you listen to foo fighters and there's a few but you know like frog stunk by Silverchair would have come out this year and i think that's probably got more similarities to nirvana and i don't actually i at the time i mean again this is this is the the, the thing about hindsight and this is the thing about immersing yourself further into as much different music as you can is that you can like at the time I listened to Bush and I listened to Silverchair and I thought they just sound like Nirvana. Mm. And actually I listen to Frog Stomp now and I go, well, actually, no, no, it doesn't just sound like Nirvana. You mm. know, it's, it's got the, the Black Sabbath-y sludgy bits and it's probably tonally got more to do with Soundgarden and vocally got a bit more to do with, it's probably more vocally Nirvana and the brighter bits are a bit more Nirvana, but tonally it's, a, and you know, and 16 stone i used to be like oh he just sounds like kurt cobain he sounds more like eddie vedder gavin rostell than he mm, sounds like kurt cobain mm, mm, mm. and foo fighters <clears throat> yeah because i guess it's produced like bleach a bit but it's but the songs aren't like you know now i can listen to it and go ah he's clearly been listening to husker do and sugar absolutely and also you know that thing that you've pointed out a few times already about how sort of big and breezy these songs you you said it with big me nirvana would have never written big me can you imagine kurt cobain singing big me it's no all you wouldn't kinds of wrong it's all kinds of wrong you know and um even for all the cows this supposed yeah. come as you are rip off yeah. like that is not any it does not sound like any nirvana song robert christigou um hey do you want to hear no. his review in all of its glory what is it just like a, a stop sign emoji and then <laughs> like verses are for okay, yeah I'm, I'm trying to guess it stop sign emoji verses are along in the ether sometimes cabbages don't make sense but here we are <laughs> like is that it oh my god um no uh that's that's you could you could, you could carry on his spirit start a robert Robert christian tribute band (laughs) um okay full review strap yourself in foo fighters the spirit is strong but the identity is weak that's it how how is (laughs) (laughs) that's the review I, i i honestly like people my mate my mate sent me a, a text the other day and he said he's watching something called the golden age of music journalism and it said and he, he was like i'm watching something called the golden age and he screenshotted it saying featuring contributions from and robert christigou was the first one so. it's like this is what i mean like you think people say that oh the god oh, the great gen- that is awful that's awful. awful awful that is how a review dare, how dare you slag off metal hammer how <laughs> dare you <laughs> Pine for the days when this was acceptable. How dare you? It's insane, How dare it? you insult me as a writer? That I'm taking a, you mushroom head fans. You mushroom head fans. How fucking dare you? Yeah. 
It's astonishing. He does, um, in brackets, he's put, this is a cool and big me, which I assume is him saying, these are the tracks that you should check out if you care to. But that is the entire review. It's just, path- it's path- yeah, pathetic. It's um, absolutely pathetic. He released a book in October 2000 called Chris Goo's Consumer Guide Album albums of the 90s in which he expanded on his feelings somewhat probably because by 2000s food fighters had in fact become rather a big deal (laughs) and he realized oh shit i should probably uh expand on that he gave it a three-star honorable mention saying an enjoyable effort consumes attuned to its overriding aesthetic or individual individual vision may well treasure What does that fucking... (laughs) (laughs) Fucking rubbish. You're rubbish, mate. You're rubbish at your job. You're rubbish. Shall we go into albums of the year? (laughs) Yes, please. Okay. Kerrang! Albums of the year, 1995. Number one. Have we done 1995? No, we haven't. No, we haven't. Great. So this is going to be an exciting little time. Um, Number one. There it is. Foo Fighters by Foo Fighters crazy Mm. times i i knew this i knew this from the time and at the time in 1995 when i saw it i remember thinking yes that's probably about right today especially looking at this list Mm. yeah i do this i i massively disagree i love this record um and it would be it would most definitely be top five for me personally it wouldn't be top i'm just looking down here now and i'm like fucking there's at least seven or eight albums on this kerrang list that i think are better than this record interesting okay interesting Mm. um but yes i mean fun little fact this is a little bit of spoiler of a spoiler for the current shape one but um the food fighters first three records all got to number one in the kerrang albums of the year uh in 95 97 and 99 um, and I can't think of another band who have done that in Kerrang's history. Three in a row at the number one spot. I have, no, to, spot you, I have to put you on the spot, but yeah, I, I, I can think of one. Can't. I, I doubt there is one. No, there probably isn't, isn't there? Which is which is mad, really, isn't it? That Foo Fighters mm. have got that. I guess Foo Fighters are very Kerrang-centric, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, number two, White Zombie, yeah. Astro Creep 2000. Fair. Uh, that, uh, you know that would that would be one of the ones that i put above this yeah mm, mm-hmm. not for me but yeah 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 uh number three fear factory demanufacture ditto mm-hmm. i'd have that in. yeah uh over. rancid and out come the walls i'm assuming that would go above this that would be my number one yeah, yeah. of course it would yeah, yeah, yeah uh therapy infernal love um fan- fucking fantastic record great records yeah yeah weird 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 record great great record um it's a bit high though isn't it it, i don't i mean as we get down the list it will feel quite high but i don't have a problem with that being there in terms of this therapy infernal love versus foo fighters i mean i could just try and sound cooler by saying oh yeah that that you know weird therapy album is much better and i prefer it much more I'm not sure I do. I think maybe I do prefer Foo Fighters to Infernal Love. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely mm. do. I, I really like Infernal Love. And when I say it's a bit high, I definitely think it should be in the top 20. Uh, but yeah, yeah as, a, as you've already teased, when we get a little bit lower, it'll be like... The highlights ah! on that record are, are 
stunning yeah just incredible yeah yeah but um but it is yeah i think it's a roller coaster i was about to say it's a roller coaster yeah yeah. Yeah. uh number six self-titled album by garbage um i fucking love that record yeah i've not heard it in ages but i should go back to it but yeah oh mate it's it's, great it's so it's so i mean it's one of those ones where you would give to someone today and they'd go man it sounds like the 90s but those songs are so i mean Oh, yeah it's yeah. a wicked i love that record it's yeah. so good yeah um fuck by the wild hearts aka phuq yeah wicked record yeah great record yeah great oh record. yeah fucking great record i think it's a, maybe a bit like infernal love in that it's quality is up and down but again when it hits it hits so so hard i would say exactly the same thing in terms of definitely think it should be in this top 20 but number seven seems a little high to me especially when you consider that melancholy and the infinite sadness by yeah, smashing pumpkins as number eight <laughs> i mean if we're being if we're talking about a, a a grand artistic achievement probably should be number one yes probably not not but, that it's not that it's perfect um melancholy no, no, in, no, in no, any no. way it, shape or form but I, I mean i still i still think well outcome of the wolves wipes the floor with pretty much every other record we we're going to mention on this list anyway but smashing pumpkins melancholy and infinite sadness is a quite incredible achievement of yeah. a record yeah yeah. Oh yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal achievement. Mm. Uh one hot minute by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm sure you're happy to see this here. Delighted to see that here, the best Red Hot Chili Peppers album. And actually I bought <laughs> this is a little aside. I actually bought One Hot Minute and Foo Fighters Foo Fighters on the same day in oh, 1995. Nice, nice. Yeah. Do you prefer it to Foo Fighters? I do. Oh, silly boy. I absolutely do. do I you- do. Uh, that would be well high in my i don't have a lot of love again for red hot chili peppers i don't have a lot of love for chili peppers and there was chat between you and i about whether or not we could do a classic album on one hot minute because i think someone suggested it as a rioters review yes and you were a bit like maybe you should just do it as a rioters review because can you really call it a classic i mean can i really call it a classic can i really say in the pantheon of classic albums when i think you know we're doing shit like the wall and okay computer and the holy bible can i really call one hot minute a classic Eh, maybe not but to me it's my favorite red hot chili peppers album i i I really i I genuinely do really really love that record i think it's awesome so maybe we'll do we'll do a feature length rioters review on one hot minute one maybe i mean we could do a double on blood sugar sex magic in one hot minute i could take blood sugar nah it's all right (laughs) (laughs) uh gun to head if you had to have one song erased uh i stick around or p yeah okay <laughs> i've just i've purposely chosen one of the best songs from foo fighters and one of the worst songs from one hot minute <laughs> but i mean p is like 60 seconds long <laughs> but it's so it's not bad even a room. oh come on i'm a little p i love uh, let's move on fuck you ass and it's all about fuck you asshole you homophobic redneck prick yes yes Oh, the so message, the message. I like the sentiment is good. The so, message is I know, so I would, rev- yeah, so I'd get rid of this. Is, um, I'll stick around. Yeah, I'll get rid of it. Because what is that about? Nothing. This is fighting homophobia, P. So fuck, fair enough, fair enough. Fuck you, asshole. Number Go 10, on. Replenish by Reef. Yes, an oh, album okay. which all of my mates absolutely loved and I think is a big pile of shit. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, it's crap. You're not a big Reef It's fan. crap. 
not that album. Have you ever heard? You've heard that? Have you heard that album? I've not heard it for a long fucking time. I can't. It's remember bad, it. man. It, it, it's it's got um, it's got naked on it, right. which was the 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 mini disc advert. Oh and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get the. Tr- I haven't even thought about this album for fucking ages, but I do remember being like, like all of my oh my god, Reef, oh my god, they're amazing, they're so good. Like, yeah, some shit on there, some absolute shit on here. Um, what's the other one? Good feeling is all right. Okay, but people were like, people, people at my school loved this okay. album. Mm-hmm. They loved it, and Naked has got a good, a really good guitar riff on it. It's not really a very good. It's not a great song, and I, you know, Glow is a, is if you're going to listen to Reef, like Glow is yeah. it got Glow's some really good songs on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not a ma- I'm not a massive fan of Reef in general, I'm but I could never get into Replenish. I thought it was pretty mm. bad, to be honest. A reef are just a poor man's television, aren't they? Uh... <laughs> they wish they were. <laughs> draconian times by paradise lost number 11 uh, yeah fucking like excellent record yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah really, really good record. Br- like brilliant dopes to infinity by monster magnet brilliant record again great record not my favorite monster magnet record no my, my, the best of monster magnet if you're asking <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it is very good though dopes to infinity yeah, really i would good. put it would i put it in my top three certainly top five maybe top three uh, I, I don't know about that. Not ooh. with, not with. Um, well, I think you got bloody the manufacturing outcome of wolves and Astro. Oh, Creek. sorry, 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 uh, sorry, sorry. Oh, right, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Top three monster magnet records. Oh, yeah, top three monster magnet records. Yeah, definitely. Uh, number thirteen is Soup by Blind Melon. Um, I don't think I've heard that record. I've only it's, heard the subtitled. It's it's the first Blind Melon album that I got. Okay. It's the first blind album, uh, blind melon album that I heard, um, and for that reason, I like it. I'm about to say the same thing about the next album that we're going to talk about, although I'm going to say it with a bit more uh, oomph, to be honest. But um, yeah, it's good. It's good soup. I mean, I, I I like blind melon a lot. I'm not. I know people who are think blind melon are like the greatest band ever, and I don't quite think that. But okay. I do. I do have a. I got a bit of a soft spot for blind melon, mm-hmm. but more of a. If you put a Blind Melon best of playlist, then I think that's wicked. But I don't, mm. I never go and listen to like Nico or the self titled all the way through or Super yeah. all the way through. But I, 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 it's good. It's a good record. Yeah. Um, I have a real soft spot for this record as well. Um, the debut, uh, debut album, <laughs> the self titled album by Alison Chains. Um, yeah. Now, I know that it is, I mean, talk about a roller coaster of a record. It's really flawed, but I kind of love this record for its flaws. Um, it might even be my. I just favorite. love this record. I actually. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I, 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 I love it. It, it. it is not, it's not regarded one of the better Alison Chains records, but I think it's probably my third favourite. Like, after Dirt and Black is Way to Blue. I really I'd like agree. it. I really me like too. It. It's got some like Heaven Beside You again. Yeah, grind. Yeah, like there's some fucking wicked songs. Like, yeah, this is this is excellent. Frogs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, frogs. Yeah, yeah, fucking hell. Yeah. See, when you say that, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's a really weird record. I think that's why people don't get on with it. But I, I think it's great. I, I it's, really it's, like it. I, I would actually argue that it is the most disorientatingly dark sounding Alice in Chains record. 100%. Even, even over dirt, which I know is all about heroin and de- depression. But those songs sound big. And so there's some, like just from the first bit of that first 
go and get that bit on grind that weird wailing thing when you start you're like oh shit and it's got a three-legged dog on the front cover and it's just a weird looking yeah i mean it's it's a band like about to implode isn't it and it really kind of sounds like it but it still sounds great i think i fucking love this record i was saying i was saying this to someone the other day i can't remember if it was you or not but that opening riff on grind to me is like you know the way that iomi wrote riffs that were just so deceptively simple but yet so brilliant i think grind is up there with the best iomi riffs Mm. and and Mm. and it's like it's two chords isn't it but it's just mm. it's so it's just so good i love it um bit of you king for a day for for a lifetime by faith no more bit of you as well right oh, oh definitely a bit of me i'm just saying yeah. bit of you because um it's your favorite faith no more album uh, it's my favorite album by my second favorite band and yet yeah. it wouldn't be my number one on this list because yeah. rancid so it's a good year yeah. uh yeah but it'll probably be set well not probably it would be second uh fucking love this record in fact it's two of probably two of my favorite 10 albums ever made yeah. are in are in this list and neither of them are number one so yeah faith no more king for a day full for a lifetime is just uh unbelievable record i love it and i'm sure we will talk about that more another day we definitely will we definitely will um for the record i think king for a day is probably my second favorite faith no more record but it's all about okay. it's all about angel dust for me uh insomniac by green day best green day album uh it's fucking brilliant um i wouldn't go as, as far as that but it is it is fucking great it's the first green day Think album dookie's the best one um fucking hell what <laughs> what's going on here it's one of these two i, I uh... it's dookie or insomniac isn't it surely what are you thinking? I'm not having. Nimrod? This, I'm not having this argument with you. You think now. Nimrod? No, I'm not having this. Ar- no, 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 not Nimrod. You're not, you're not thinking an American idiot. Are you? <laughs> Let's move on. Uh... <laughs> no, no, Let's surely not. I didn't know that. Well, I, I thought I knew you were stupid enough to like it, but I didn't <laughs> think you were that stupid. Fucking hell! <laughs> I need. I'm, it's really fucking difficult to compare them, isn't it? But. I don't yeah because yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah all right all right, yeah, all right. Yeah. whatever anyway insomniac's fucking great i i love it brilliant brilliant record mm. and yeah it's your favorite green day record yeah oh mate paranoid and sunburnt by skunk and nancy what an album great record they are I selling mean, jesus to... again all right um <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is a this is a great record and at the Same time it. i dismissed I dismissed um, Skunk and Nancy around this time as just because I listened to it and I was like, "You're just this is just Rage Against Machine riffs. You're just wholesale nicking Rage Against Machine's the, 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 musical they, part." They have a big, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, massively. Uh, but yeah. but I mean, um, when you've got a singer like Skin, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because oh, she brings something incredibly different to the table. Yeah, that they also, about Skunk and Nancy. They also the the only uh, yes when you go to selling Jesus and songs like that, then yes, there's a Rage thing. But you know, Rage didn't do songs like weak did they you know so no, that's true I, I think that is a little unfair but i, un- I understand or charity or charity uh, which i don't, don't want no oh it, it is on this charity. album isn't it it is on this album <laughs> might listen to that later yeah i might, I might listen to that album after this yeah. we're gonna fuck this off now and uh, go and listen to skunk and nancy um no. it's weird how skunk and nancy's that they they they're, they're not they were so sort of unique and 
revolutionary at the time and big as well. Like they had like Glastonbury. Yeah. And they're just sort of no one. I yeah. wouldn't say no one cares about Skankanancy. I'm sure they could fill the Roundhouse or Brixton or something. I think they did. I think they announced a tour for their 25th anniversary or, or to maybe the 25th anniversary of this record, um, which I think was scuppered by COVID, but they were doing Brixton. So. Yeah. But I mean, it's weird that they're not. Yeah. I don't know. They just. They were very, very, very. Sort of forward, unusual, unique, forward-thinking band. They, they were fantastic. Kind of weird that, yeah, they were fantastic. Weird. Paranoid and Sunburn is a, like it is very '90s sounding, but it is a fucking great record. And um, mm. I think uh, Post Orgasmic Chill is a fucking incredible record as well. Um, yeah, I wondered why you didn't mention Stoosh. I think Stoosh has got some good singles. Stoosh is my least favorite of those three. I have to say, which is controversial, oh, but yeah, I don't think do? it is that controversial actually. But. Oh. There you go. Uh, I think that's generally what people think. I don't think Stoosh is considered a great record. I think it's got really good singles. It does have great singles. Yeah. Hedonism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of a big one, wasn't it? Uh, Osmosis by Ozzy Osbourne. Um, yeah. I've, Perry Mason. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've that's got, it. I See haven't, you later. haven't listened to Osmosis for ages, but yeah, uh, that's fine. Frog Stump by Silverchair at number 19. Yeah, I love Silverchair. Mm-hmm. Love that album. I love Silverchair. Um, I'm. I'm bigger into kind of neon ballroom and uh, I, I think freak scene is fucking awesome, but I do like Frog Stomp a lot. Freak show. Freak show. Thank you very much. Um, Ball Breaker by ACDC at number 20. <laughs> yeah. Crap. ACDC album, like a proper crap. One of the, one of the worst ACDC albums. It sounds like all the other ones though, doesn't it? Yeah, but not as good. <laughs> There's just no good songs on it. I mean, it does sound like all the other ACDC albums, but I think like, that is one of the ones that you really don't need. You okay. probably, yeah, you you probably can get away with not owning that. And it's not I'm the one sure you don't. It's not the one with Thunderstruck, on it, is it? No, 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 no. Okay. That's the Razor's Edge before. Um, okay. It's the one produced by Rick Rubin, and everyone was like, "Oh, they're going to make them sound great again." And uh, he didn't. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't. They all sound the same to me. Sixteen Stone mm. by Bush. Number twenty one. Yeah, I like I like that album. I think it's this is mental. Record. Yeah, this this, this is, is mental. Weezer by Weezer, aka the Blue Album, at number twenty two. Uh, what? What? How? The actual fuck? Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, that that that's top three. That is that should be top three. That is that would be my num- that would be my third my third place yeah, one, yeah. fair enough yeah. fair enough um really weirdly vault Def leopard's greatest hits by Def leopard uh at now again don't ever tell me i mean i've seen people moaning about deftones being the metal hammer album of the year this year oh yeah they've just paid to be like some absolutely unbelievably bullshit comments don't ever 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 hark back to the halcyon days of magazines when shit like this was happening. <laughs> Def Leppard's greatest hits getting in your top 25 albums of the year yeah. in 1995. Yeah. It's not a fucking album. It's fucking it. absurd. Yeah, yeah. I've heard quite a few comments about people going, oh, Def Tanks have paid to get albums of the year. It's fucking like... I saw, I saw one guy who was like, oh, they will never pick anything that's not big because uh, not got a lot of money behind it because they need the ad revenue to go. And it's like... How do you think that happened? Do you like me and Renfrey for the record? I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, no, but sorry. me and Renfrey both got the same email, didn't we? Going, what are your top twenty albums a year? Please send them in. Yeah, we didn't. Neither of us got them sent. Um, them sent back to us. Going, yeah. Um, so because like Jay Jail was my number two, mm. 
and no one went back and went sorry you can't have jjl at number two that's not enough ad revenue for yeah, us exactly yeah. so please send it back and make sure you put deftones in there for us please so well, that we can like they're not manipulating the stuff the top 20s will go out online and those stats are impossible to manipulate like just don't be a dick it's, i mean i mean people like conspiracy theories don't they and they like to pretend so lame it's right? if you can get 40 50 odd contributors who like we don't write full-time for that magazine we have mm. no reason to like be manipulated into saying what we like and what we don't like maybe it, the reason it's number one is because most people who were those contributors heard it and not everybody heard the fucking hell ripper album yeah, or whatever exactly. you think should be number one and what with deftones being a sort of arena band maybe they've got a really strong fan base yeah. <laughs> and maybe when they release an album that and the people who write for a metal magazine like this big metal band. Maybe they all like the good album that they released. And even though, even though Deftones is only like sixth on my list for Hammer, and I'm sure it's probably like it was, fifth or something. It, it was top. It was top ten. But uh, but yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. But if everybody puts it in the top ten, yeah, and then they it, put Jay Gel or Caspian or Hell Ripper or Intronaut at number one but only one person i mean it's just simple maths isn't it yeah it's yeah. just maths that's always going to happen yeah obviously people i don't know why, how we've got into this but fuck me you're thick you lot well, um, you're not you lot listening to this no, no no i'm sure you're nodding your head sagely and going we know this but i just see some things and i'm like oh god you just look like a moron i want such a more i once got accused of um being paid to write an article about black peaks on the independent <laughs> isn't that pathetic <laughs> people are so fucking stupid um I paid no, to write about black peaks yeah what? on their what? first album as well yeah oh well, when they were a massive back yeah because i know i remember <laughs> what when they because they won the brit award that year didn't they, they were, the, that's because of all those grammys that they were given yeah, people are thick. Number 24, Apes, Pigs and Spacemen, Transfusion. I don't know who Apes, Pigs and Spacemen are. Do you know them? I do. Yeah, I know them. Um, I have no strong feelings, uh, either positively or negatively, towards okay. Apes, Pigs and Spacemen. I'm expecting you have a strong feeling on this, though. Number 25, Just Getting In There, These Days by Bon Jovi. Isn't that the greatest hits again? No, these days is the one with uh, Give me someone for the pain Give me someone for the blues Give me someone for the pain When I feel like I'm hanging from a hangman's noose I don't know Give me someone for the It's something for the pain by Bon Jovi It's fucking great um, No, the album is um, pretty not great It's uh, it's hit and miss It's got Hey God on it Hey God oh fuck it let's move on uh <laughs> i have nothing nothing to say about this um it was definitely yeah bon jovi's stock had gone down quite a lot by then and he was definitely writing some sappy bullshit by then but it's mm -hmm. got some good songs on it uh let's move through some of these other lists because there's uh, a lot oh, yeah to go we took through. ages on kerrang didn't we bloody we hell. did take a long time rolling stone 1995 critics list number one is pj harvey to bring you my love which i'm very very happy about because that is one of my yep. favorite pj harvey records and a future classic albums it's number two foo fighters by foo fighters lovely i'm quite stuff. surprised to see it that high up to be mm. perfectly honest because mm. i thought they might be a bit snotty about it yeah. but good snotty rolling stone number three <laughs> is maxin quay by tricky uh, wicked album i've i i've not heard it in full but um 
uh, tricky. I'm not for a long time. Tricky is I like tricky. Tricky is probably someone I've not thought about since the nineties. <laughs> I would have thought, but yeah, uh, that album's really, really good though. Okay, it I, is I, really I, I, good. I'll take yeah. your word for it, but I've just, I've mm. just not thought about it for a long time. Number four is Elastica by Elastica. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness at number five for Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, that's fair enough. Mirrorball by Neil Young at number six. That is the Neil Young album, which uh, has Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam as the backing band. Mm. We did it. Um, Sweet. For a trade-off, trade off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's a cool album. I, I, it's a cool album. I love it. I don't know if it needs to be in a top ten, but, you know. Uh, yeah. What's the story? Morning Glory by Oasis at number seven. That's fair enough. But I you mean, would have thought it would be higher, wouldn't you? Not in America. Oh, that's a good point. Good point. Not in America. Yeah. yeah. I know they were the biggest band in the world if the world was just England the UK, or yeah. Manchester. No, 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 no. You made a very good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, joint seventh, actually, uh, because it's joint with Post by Björk. Um, Sweet. Which is cool. Um, yeah. Don't know this album. Sun Vault Trace at number nine. Don't know that either, to be honest. No. And uh jesus wept and so did i because pm dawn is at number 10 with jesus wept. that's mad isn't it yeah pm dawn in the top 10 in a year like that Fucking yeah. hell. Um, to him. melody maker who gave uh that rather sniffy review that i read out to the album uh before we should go quite quickly through these so number one mm -hmm. different class by pulp fine uh, fair dude uh tricky by Mac uh sorry max and quay by tricky number two yeah good What's the story? Morning Glory by Oasis at number three. It's great Spectre, when you, yeah. great when you're straight yes. by Black Grape. At number yes, four. yes. <laughs> Justice for Black Grape. Put some respect on that name. Mm. Yes, I still listen to that album all the time. Fucking wicked record. We did that. I don't care what you think. We did that on a trailer yeah. as well, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you were very, very mean about it. You were very mean about that grape. <laughs> <laughs> very mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I it, it's of its time let's say that it's of its time well today <laughs> mm. i mean it does say time is now it does say end of year critics list 1995 at the top of my page but sure uh the second tinder sticks album by tinder sticks i haven't thought about tinder sticks probably since 1995 i have to say uh, i but... wish to not think about them anymore no. as well uh radiohead the bends at number six B below tinder sticks <laughs> I mean, I said, I, yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I said if we were doing, um, you know, our top albums in Kerrang, yeah. then I said my top three would be that. Uh, the Bends by Radiohead, yeah. if we were doing just the album, the year in general, I mean, that is, right Faith No More, Radiohead and Rancid and Weezer, that is some big old fight out mm. for that, that top spot. And Absolutely. Radiohead would be maybe the favorites yeah uh i should coco by supergrass mm -hmm. uh, oh, it drove me crazy this record because of um fucking um we are young we are yeah. great being everywhere that summer oh it's not the best out. song on that album at all though, no it's it? not no it's not but um mm -hmm. it really made me dislike supergrass for quite a long time and then i actually listened to them i was like oh actually they're quite good uh yeah. timeless by goldie um never listened to that never listened to it uh to bring you by in love by pj harvey at number nine yes mm -hmm. uh the great escape by blur at number 10 sure you got something to say about that uh, it's the not as good version of park life uh, right in, in that it's quite good but it's well, it's 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 a good album, but it's not as good as Park Life, I don't think. Personally. Okay, I'm gonna just pick highlights from this point. So, um, Clouds Taste Metallic from the Flaming Lips is at number twelve. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the Charlatans, the Charlatans by the Charlatans. You've missed out Leftism by Leftfield oh, at number did, 13, I? which yeah, is a no, fucking no, great record. Important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Leftfield, Leftism, the Charlatans by the Charlatans at number 15. Garbage by Garbage at number 18. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Elastica there. Wake, again. <laughs> wake Up Boo by the Boo Radleys. Oh, Radleys, yeah, Wake but... Up Boo by the Boo Radleys. That's not um, the Boo Radleys, you idiot. That's the New Radicals. Oh, I always the get Boo the Boo Radleys is... Beep, beep, wake up, boo. There's so many. No. Wake up, it's a beautiful morning. I, I always get the Boo Radleys and the New Radicals mixed up. I don't know why. I don't know why. I think it's because they both were fronted by a bald man in a fisherman's hat. And, well, you know how I get bald men mixed up all the time. You heard my movie story. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and also, um, they are both the bands and uh, three letter words and then a word which begins with R. I think that's why it is. Mm. Oof. Well, that's a long way around. Uh, <sighs> Let's you know. just fuck. You do always get bald men mixed up with uh, <laughs> other people, don't you? You said hello, Ainsley Harriet, when I answered the phone earlier, <laughs> didn't you? Did, yeah. Yeah. Um, look, let's just pop down to where this record is on here. It's number 26 for the fighters. Um, mm-hmm. Not probably what you'd expect from the <laughs> review that it was given. Um, but yeah, Melody Maker. There you go. I mean, it's below olympian by gene mm. and even experimental um re- remixes by john spencer please explain it's not even a proper john spencer yeah quite album uh there's a few there's some really yeah weird well there know. are some really interesting i mean an elven soul by the verve is a fucking great record that's a number 29 yeah. uh cast all change at number 33 <laughs> um exit planet dust by the chemical brothers at 36 mm-hmm. crazy wow he's crazy by sexy Pavement. cool boy Crazy Sex called by TLC at 40, yes. Great. Um, oh, and... Or Tecra. Oh, yeah. Um, try re- Repite at 47. Uh, Post by Björk at number 48. Uh, yeah. Um, a right higgledy-biggledy list, that one. Um, mm. Spin, we should talk about very quickly. First. <laughs> number one is Moby. Everything is wrong. Sorry, Stephen Hill. Everything is wrong. Um... <laughs> Tricky again. Tricky's in quite a lot of these. Uh, Max and Quay. Good album, two. man. Yeah, uh, I, I will check it out. Uh, PJ Harvey to bring my love at number three. Elastica by Elastica at number four. There it is. Vitology by Pearl Jam at number five. Mm. About that fucking last. time. Um, Crazy Sexy Cool by TLC at number six. Uh, Matthew Sweet, one hundred percent fun. Don't well, if that. he says so, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of shit here that then I just don't know. Outcome the Walls by Rancid at number 10. Post by Björk yeah. at number 13. Green Day Insomniac at 15. Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. I can't believe that's not been in either, anyone else's. That's How mad, has that not been in anyone else's? I guess it might have been because it was such a massive success. I don't remember this at the time, but maybe maybe there was a massive um, uh, backlash. backlash, but... Yeah, I'm kind of surprised. Uh, she won a she won a uh, Brit Award a couple of months after this. So, yeah, yeah. Um, one hot minute. Red Hot Chili Peppers at 18, and Foo mm-hmm. Fighters is uh, number 20 in um, yep. the spin list. And then very quickly, let's go to um, Enemy as well. Uh, Tricky is number one. Max and Quay at number one. I did know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember that happening. What's the story? Morning Glory number two. Uh, in Enemy list, um, it's great when you're straight. Yeah, number three. By Black Grape, there it is. Black Grape, even even I'm like Black Grape above one place above Radiohead is 
Yeah, at number quite the four look with the bends. Yeah, yeah. Teenage Fan Club Grand Prix at number five. That's kind of cool. I like that. Yeah, I don't mind that album. Um, I Should Coco by Supergrass, number six. Different Class by Pulp, seven. To Bring You My Love, PJ Harvey, eight. Great Escape by Blur, nine. Timeless by Goldie, ten. Elastica, Elastica, eleven. And there it is. Foo Fighters by Foo Fighters at number 12. Um, then there is a bunch of stuff that we've kind of already talked about, isn't there? Hot Charity by Rocket from the Crypt at 15 is nice to see. Oh, yes. Yes. Mm. Um, but I think bar that we've cut. Co- oh, Stanley Road by Paul Weller Stanley Road. Ro- yeah. Do you know what? That's going to be, I mean, we, we chatted a couple of times about what we may or may not do. And, and Stanley Road is on my list of classic albums to do. And I'm, I can't believe that <laughs> it's only number 25 mm, in yeah. the NME yeah. and it doesn't appear to be anywhere else. I think that's really, really, really fucking weird. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at this list at the moment. I mean, stuff like Smashing Pumpkins at 38 is pretty mad. Yeah. Um, Scott Walker, Tilt is 43. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth mentioning Washing Machine by Sonic Youth at 31. And Red Medicine and by Red Fugazi Medicine. at 49. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a terrible, not a, not a terrible uh, list at all. Not a terrible list, just a cracker's order, I think. Mm. But um, yeah, hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, like, Money Mark is one place above Stanley Road. I, I like, you know, Money Mark's good, like great with the Beastie Boys, obviously. But I don't know that I want to listen to his... Anyway, we'll get into that another time, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the album was nominated for the Best Alternative Music Album at the 1996 Grammy Awards Ceremony, but lost to... Do you know the answer to this? Green Day? No, MTV Unplugged in New York by Nirvana. Interesting. Oh, God. Um, despite Robert Christogu's best efforts, it also ranked at number six on the Village Voices' Paz and Jock Paul and 20th on Spins List, as we've already gone into. So the album was promoted through an extensive tour. Uh, six singles uh, were released in total in various different places around the world, two of which were accompanied by music videos. That's Big Me and I'll Stick Around. Um, there was a lot of shows that happened. They ended up touring for a good 18 months with this record around the US and the UK. We've talked about um, the uh, Brixton Academy show a little bit. Um, that Brixton Academy show is available on YouTube in full and I would fully recommend it. It's absolutely fantastic. I watched it with the aforementioned ex um, who had been to it once and it's fucking great. I don't know if you've you've probably seen it at some point, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. I remember I was actually saying... Um earlier when i was sat in the the room that i watched it you know there was a point where everybody from my school would just come around my house uh, on a sort of friday night and somebody had the nirvana late and mtv late and live and there was about 30 of us watching that in this quite a small room and then we did the same with the foo fighters brixton academy show nice. when that got shown on mtv nice. it was really cool yeah um really yeah cool. it, was, it was really good and yeah i mean i, I Sorry, I was about to go. And then they played Reading, and I'm sure we we're about oh, to no, 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 no. Yeah. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. They did a bunch of shows uh, around the US with a lot of like great bands that have probably been forgotten now, like Hovercraft and Wool and Shudder to Think and stuff like that. Um, but yes, as you have already pointed out, the big, big, big talking point regarding this tour was Reading 1995. Um, the three headliners at Reading 95, Smashing Pumpkins, Björk, which is the day that Foo Fighters played, and Neil Young with Pearl Jam, mm-hmm. of course, at that time. Oh, Soundgarden into Neil Young with Pearl Jam. I would have absolutely nutted myself for that. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> you'd have nutted yourself. <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have headbutted yourself. Don't mean that kind of nut. 
Uh, now I have a. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you did, but fine. <laughs> I have a first-hand account of the Reading Festival show from Stuart Green reporting for MTV. Uh, this is um. A fairly amusing review actually it's definitely well worth reading it's quite long but it is worth worth hearing so i take the precaution of making my way back to the second stage a full half hour before foo fighters are due to appear in order to claim a decent vantage point as i near the tent it seems like about twenty thousand of the great unwashed have had the same idea dave grohl's new band are clearly one of the most popular draws of the weekend way way too popular for a tent that holds maybe three thousand people I make my way to the far side in the hope of sneaking in around the back, but there's thousands ahead of me. We're hundreds and hundreds deep outside the tent. Whose bright idea was this then? Their album went straight in at the charts at number two, didn't it? It didn't. Uh, what a farce. I'm about 30 yards from the tent with no chance of even catching sight of Grohl's hair in close proximity to someone who's forgotten to bring their deodorant with them. I am not happy. I weigh out my chances of climbing up on the roof of the tatty looking coach, which is parked next to an exit gate only 25 yards from the tent. But no luck. There are about 50 smug looking people up there buckling the thin sheet metal until security comes to remove them. Ha! That'll teach them, young people today. To make matters even more unbearable, the foos, the foo techies take an age sound checking. When suddenly a roar goes up on their own, steaming straight into Winnebago, and they're loud, even outside the tent. Inside, every one of the other... Every one of the outer support poles is occupied by shining examples of head-banging British manhood. Oddly enough, no one has taken the central support, which is conveniently made up of easy-to-climb scaffolding. I'm thinking this to myself in between doing some vague approximation of dancing when some nutcase dives into the moshing hordes from about 30 feet up. Someone's going to get hurt. But that's the cue for as many people as the central support can hold to climb up until they are forming a precarious-looking human pyramid. Sure enough, about four songs in, after a crushing version of This Is A Call, Grohl stops the gig so so some lemming can be dragged out of the crowd and the squad occupying the central support can be forced down. The Foos play another bruising melodic slice of choice hardcore, followed by a request to take a couple of steps back so that those at the front can escape with their lives. It's crazy, intense, murderous, and I love it. I've had enough of being on the fringes and pushed my way past those smaller and frailer than me in order to get me a slice of the action. Inside, the bands are obscured by a cloud of steam that rises from the mosh maniacs who are having to be hosed down at regular intervals. The band are mad for it too. In every instrumental break, Grohls joins his nutty onstage dancer Tony in a hair-tossing contest that has me looking for the brain matter that should surely soon start escaping from their ears. The rest of the band just can't believe what is happening out there. It's goofy grins all round, even though Grohl betrays his anxiety that someone might get hurt in between each song. Then, with a scream of powerful hydraulics, they shudder to a stop. It's all over. Everyone in the crowd looks around at each other, suddenly hollow, emptied out. Yes. Now, I I have a little... Now, I didn't go to Reading 95. My first Reading was Reading 96. But a small group of my friends from school went to reading 95 and i remember when we came back to start our final year at school after the summer holidays they came back with stories of reading 95 and how they had been to reading and blow and all this stuff and how brilliant it was and that made me go i have to go i have to go next year i have to go and they said they managed to get in for foo fighters because you know it, it was to give you like it was it was bjork um boo radley's yeah mates in it 
um, <laughs> tricky. <laughs> uh, Paul Weller is what I Paul, mean. Paul, Paul Weller. Weller. Paul, Paul Weller, yeah. Yeah, Paul, and, Paul Weller was um, in between Bjork and Boo Radley's. Yeah, and it was stuff I think like Shed 7. Shed 7 played that day. Shed 7 and, throwing muses, corduroy, little axe, skunk Nancy and James Hall. Not not a massive rock lineup. So it yeah. feel it feels like basically all the rock kids were just piling into that tent because, you know, uh, I mean Bjork's amazing, but I can understand why a, a well, Grebo apparently apparently Bjork played to pretty much nobody. Really? Wow. Apparently apparently they said I mean, I don't know how accurate this really is, but by all accounts, Bjork played to a kind of a, a second stage sized crowd, right. while the Foo Fighters played to a main stage sized crowd yeah, yeah. on the second stage. And they were like, yeah, it was it was insane. But they said they got into the tent like two, three hours before Foo Fighters were even on. So they got in like three bands before and just kind of hung around and then they were like so, <laughs> it was it was the they were saying that it was fucking terrifying like when they went to leave they just looked out and they were like in the tent it felt like madness but when you actually got outside you were like oh fuck the entire festival was here on the edge of this tent mm. and they said like it kept stopping and people were like getting pulled out and it was fucking carnage yeah absolute fucking carnage so yeah it sounds That's like it. I mean, I what I like. I mean, there's you know certain elements of that MTV report which I think are a bit you know 1995, let's say, um, music journalist. But what I do like about it is it does kind of give an idea of the carnage um, mm. there, you know, and like um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, the the Foo's said for years and years and years and years and years that Reading '95 was one of their highlights of their entire career. Um, mm. But at the same time, thankfully, no one did get hurt, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but it, um, or seriously hurt, certainly. But um, it was a, yeah, I mean, just a gross, <laughs> gross mistake from Reading. It's probably gone down as, like, the biggest mistake Reading have made in terms of billing, right? Well, probably. it's, it's. I think, you know, it's. I think they learnt their lesson from it when they, the strokes are meant to be on the third stage. And then they got moved up to the second stage when it was like, oh, the, the hype surrounding them. Yeah. And then they got moved to the main stage because I think they were just like, if you don't do this, it's going to be another Foo Fighters. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, like as fun as that might sound, I don't think people really wanted to go through the hell of that going on because, I mean, I do remember my mate saying like at the end, the tent was just fucked. Yeah. You know I mean, it's like getting pulled down and shit was bent out of shape and the, there were loads of like that people getting fainted and were just lying on the floor and it was just like absolute fucking carnage and the the stalls and stuff behind you know like the food stalls and stuff were getting trampled you know shit was getting pulled down and trampled on it was just like just mental well it's one of those weird oh, and, and they walked by and they were like oh bjork's playing to 300 people <laughs> it, it sounds like one of those weird shows. i mean i've been to a couple myself where it's kind of exhilarating yet terrifying at the same time and you know mm. I'm, I'm sure you've been to a few shows where you're like oh my god someone's actually going to die here kind of thing and like yeah it does sound a bit like that and thankfully no one did but um yeah it sounds pretty intense the yeah. set list for that show Winnebago, I'll Stick Around, Butterflies, Watershed, Big Me, This Is A Call, Weenie Beanie, For All The Cows, Oh George, Podunk, Good Grief, Alone and Easy Target, Ecstatic, My Hero, and, exhaust yeah. and Exhausted. We'll talk mm. about that next week, uh, next week, the next episode. 
Um, so let's sum up this album, Foo Fighters. Um, I think considering the position that Dave Grohl was in, in a way, Dave Grohl was in a worse position than a musician that was just starting out because a lot of people were actually dead set against him doing this and had immediately made their mind up about Foo Fighters before they'd even played a note. Um, and what started as this tiny little project, which wasn't really meant to be anything bar Dave Grohl kind of reaching a level of catharsis through music and trying to reconnect with music and enjoy it again. It was only ever meant to be a project that could make him um, reconnect with his passion. And yet it is an album that we're talking about 25 years later, mm. um, which was just, you know, shat out in six days, basically. <laughs> you know and the only way really there's no big like there's no big theme there's no big concept there's no big message to this record the only thing about it that makes it classic and makes it brilliant is the songs are fucking great like mm. the songs are really really good i think the fact that it's interesting hearing you talk about it like Good Grief, for example, you said you hadn't heard this record for a while and you went back to it and you're like, actually, Good Grief's a really good song. I'd never really noticed that. I mm. do, even though this is a really simple, raw, ragged recording, I do go back to this album and go, oh, I've never really seen that song in that way. I've never really... And, and considering that these songs are about fucking nothing at all, <laughs> that's just good songwriting. Like, that's yeah. because they're well put together. Um, and it's really funny that Dave Grohl just didn't have any confidence in anything he was doing, his voice, his, you know, I mean, he didn't want, he didn't even want to have his name in the credits initially, you know, he yeah. just, he just didn't, he did, he just wanted it to be released. And, um, as I said, he, he made a hundred copies on vinyl and a hundred copies on tape. And that was it initially. Mm. And, yet you know this is this is a call is still a massive tune and foo fighters still regularly play it you know and stuff like that i mean it is still huge and going back to this album i just like we've just been talking about a whole bunch of 90s albums from all those lists and i don't think this album has dated because it's almost too raw and underground to have dated it doesn't mm. sound 90s-y, it just sounds um it just sounds underproduced kind of thing. But 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 some of those big records that were produced like really well and to a high standard have dated far, far worse because they had all the bells and whistles and accoutrements from the nineties put on them. Um and I think for an album that started from such small beginnings to have endured for this long is an absolutely astonishing feat um this is my second favorite Foo Fighters record <laughs> yeah me too um 
and I, I and I absolutely adore it. Um, it is for me. I'm not sure if this is the case for you. For me, it's a very close second. And actually, I kind of think of it sometimes a bit like the way I do with um, the Blue Album and Pinkerton. Hmm. So Pinkerton is my favourite Weezer record on most days. But occasionally, when I'm really in the mood for the Blue Album, there, there, are, there are maybe maybe 30 days of the year where actually the Blue Album is my favourite because I'm really in the mood for that sort of thing. And I kind hmm. of feel that way about Foo Fighters and the colour and the shape, which we'll get into on the next part. Yeah. What do I think? Yeah. Hmm. Now, for me, uh, when we started doing this and it was like, you know, what makes a classic record? And I think we had a couple of little conversations about, you know, what what is it that makes a classic record? And what is it that we should define as a classic record? And I think one of the things we said, and we have slightly veered from it with stuff like uh, Cave In, for example, who are not a massive, massive, massive band, but I think still deserve to be considered a classic album. Um, it's not just how good the record is. It's about the circumstances that surround it, the kind of mythology, if you like, mm. that surrounds it. And it does still have to be a good record. I think is the important thing the music on it has to be good first and foremost but i was like let's not pick something really really tiny and incredibly obscure that we don't really have that much to say about apart from isn't this a good record with that metric being what it is the debut foo fighters album undoubtedly is a classic record definitely because yeah those songs do endure to this mm. day completely they do the circumstances that surround these records that this record I think has given it um, a context that it probably doesn't even really need. I think this record would be great if, like you said, Dave Grohl had so much riding on him and so much pressure that maybe he didn't want. If this was the debut album by some little punk band, we'd get it and go, wow, what a great, ba what a great band this is. This band could be really, really good. But the fact that it's the guy from Nirvana and we all, you know, we gave it far more scrutiny than you would do to such some random band. And yet it still stands up. Yeah. And I, like I said, I probably haven't sat down and listened to this record for 15 years, maybe more. And when I did, I kind of went, I wonder if this is still good. This record, I wonder if it's still good. I know, you know, again, it's my second favorite. I, we'll talk about the color and the shape um, in a little bit. And I think undoubtedly the color and the shape is, musically as a, a greater achievement yes. as, a, as a piece of work of art as a piece of music but there's something really pure about the first Foo Fighters album there's something like and for all my kind of what I've said about Foo Fighters over the last few years and whatever there is something that is wonderfully beautifully pure and innocent and sweet about this record mm -hmm. like you don't think of grunge or whatever you know alternative rock or you know, 95 like heavy music to be like heartfelt and sweet but i think this record does just feel like it's a cathartic release without having to say anything cathartic it's somebody who had lost the joy of music recapturing that and when this album is good and it is good more often than it isn't good you know i pick three songs from it 
three songs from a 12 track album that I'm like, well, I could do without them. Mm. Not that they're bad. The songs are <clears throat> actively bad. Like I listen to them and go, this sucks. But mm. three that I think oh, I, I, they're okay. Mm. They're fine. That still leaves you with nine really, you know, really good songs, really, really good songs. And they're not difficult. They're not, you know, like, like you say, they don't say anything. They're not original. They're not pushing forward the boundaries of what rock music should be. But there's, it's a snapshot into the, the mind of someone who had been nearly broken and had their career taken away from them. And they're kind of fallen out of love with something. And it's them rediscovering a love for music. And I think no matter how you feel about the Foo Fighters, no matter how you feel about Dave Grohl, no matter how you feel about this record, I don't think you can hate this record for that reason. You know, I think it would be, you'd, you'd have to be a really churlish, miserable person to to want to deny Dave Grohl that. Mm. Do you not think? Oh yeah, I, I absolutely think that. Yeah, yeah. And I think when you listen to this record, even if you come from a place of not wanting to like it, I think you absolutely have to give Dave Grohl credit and more than the benefit of the doubt. This is a very, very, very good album. Just a really great, well-crafted rock record. Um, from somebody who might who, who said they, you know, a year before was packing up their drums and didn't ever want to play drums again. Yeah. And for that reason, I'm glad we've done it and I'm I'm glad we are doing it. And I, what I have to say is I... I I probably like it more now than I did back when I thought I really liked it. I I probably yeah. appreciate it more now in 2000 than I did 25 years ago when I first bought it. I'm the same. Yeah. And there was a load of hype around it and everyone was saying, oh, this is the greatest thing and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I actually think it sounds better today than it did back then. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So fair fucking play. It's very good um there you go foo fighters foo fighters as picked by renfrey i hope you enjoyed that and as i said this is really a mere aperitif for what we're going to be doing because we're about to go in on the color and the shape the follow-up to this record the first proper foo fighters album i would argue but anyway we're the first the first foo fighters record with them as a band as a band yeah Yeah. and a very fine record indeed you can listen to that over on patreon.com forward slash right act podcast if you sign up to our five pound a month tier which gives you access to a couple of these classic albums a month one of Renfri's and one of mine so we'll be doing that over there now and i'll be revealing what our next classic album is going to be which is my next pick as well which is what we like to do um and trust me it's probably worth worth buying that special just to hear what we're going to do next Mm. thanks very much for listening we hope you enjoyed it and we will see you over on our patreon page fingers crossed bye-bye